You're listening to the Assembly Call IU podcast and postgame show, the place where Indiana fans across the globe hang out online after every IU basketball game. Join us for our live broadcasts on Thursday nights and immediately following every IU game at our website, assemblycall.com. That's assemblycall.com. Hey, this week's edition of Banner Monday, which we're publishing here on Tuesday, is coming right up. Before we get to that, though, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated, as you know. With hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability, it is hard to know who to trust. But that's why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so that you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. And there's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. For example, Friday night in Maryland. I know we have a lot of listeners that are in that area. I'm looking at it right now. There are some good seats available in like the $36, $39 range. You can get some pretty good seats uh, to this game. If you want to spend, you know, 50, 70 bucks, there's some really good seats at that price too. So if you want to go cheer on the Hoosiers at Maryland, you can do that. Obviously any other games in the season coming up at Simon Scott assembly hall or road venues, you can find there on SeatGeek and find really good prices, really good values. Cause the way it works and the way that SeatGeek is basically designed to make the ticket buying experience easier than it's ever been is they search multiple ticket sites and then they grade every ticket based on value. So SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. You go there, you can look, and they even have a little queue, like this little you know, green dots or, or, or the kind of a color coding uh, from green to yellow to red that shows you what the best values are. So it makes it really, really simple. And every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It is the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I use it for sports tickets, use it for concert tickets. Whenever I need tickets to a live event, it's the first place I go. And best of all, listeners to the Assembly Call, I get $10 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. So just download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code ASSEMBLY, and you will get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. That is promo code ASSEMBLY. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. And now, here is this week's edition of Banner Monday on Tuesday. Welcome, Hoosier fans, to this week's edition of Banner Monday on Tuesday, where we kick off each week by doing what IU fans love more than anything else, talking hoops. IU hoops, Big Ten hoops, deep dives into basketball strategy and concepts. We do it all here every Monday, and we're happy to have you here with us. I'm your host, Jared Morris. This is the 10th edition of Banner Monday, and it is our 464th episode overall of the Assembly Call, recorded on the afternoon of Tuesday, January 8th, 2018. So yes, this is Banner Monday on Tuesday. But let's begin this edition of the assembly call. I got to say, it's great branding. Well, it was maybe an ill-advised decision to name it after a day because it gives us very little (laughs) flexibility if we ever have to reschedule it. So that's a lesson, a lesson for the future. You know, we kind of fly by the seat of our pants here at the assembly call. I'll just let you guys in on a little secret. Ah, yes. All right. So uh, here's our Hoosier Proud banner moment for this week. So this week's banner moment occurred to me while I was listening to Monday's edition of the Moving Screen podcast, which is a show about Michigan and Michigan State hoops that's hosted by two of my favorite Big Ten writers, Brendan Quinn of The Athletic and Dylan Burkhart of UM Hoops. So shout out to those guys. 
But in reflecting on Michigan's victory over Indiana, both Brendan and Dylan agreed that the fight Indiana showed in battling back from the early deficit was impressive, especially as compared to previous Michigan games against good competition this season. And I think that context is important as we assess what we saw on Sunday. The Wolverines annihilated Villanova early in the season, and the Wildcats barely mustered a whimper all game long. Michigan beat North Carolina by 17 in the Big Ten ACC Challenge, thanks to a dominant 30-12 stretch to start the second half, which the Tar Heels never recovered from and basically folded after. And Michigan thrashed Purdue using a similar game-opening blitzkrieg to what we saw Sunday. Michigan led 30-16 to after the first 10 minutes of that game, and Purdue would proceed to lose every 10-minute segment thereafter, finally falling 76-57. to And yet our Hoosiers, playing without their starting point guard and backup center, not to mention Jake Forrester, Jerome Hunter, and Race Thompson too, and with Zach McRoberts at about 60% because of his back injury, took a 30-13 to haymaker within the game's first nine minutes, but never stopped fighting. Unlike Villanova, North Carolina, and Purdue, Indiana found a way to bounce back from the big blow delivered by Michigan to get the game within seven points at one point in the second half. The Hoosiers actually outscored Michigan by six points over the final 30 minutes of the game. That was worth feeling good about right after the game, but I feel even better about it considering how other highly regarded teams have wilted in the face of previous Michigan onslaughts. Now, understand, I'm not claiming it as a moral victory. Archie Miller has made it clear he has no use for moral victories, and 30 minutes of better basketball doesn't erase the 10 minutes of horrendous basketball that preceded it. But with the Archie Miller era still in its infancy, these kinds of positive signs, even within double-digit losses, are worth noting. Once Archie's Hoosiers actually start fighting in a game, they don't stop. They finish game strong. Now we just have to get our fight going earlier in games. And if we learn how to do that, this team will be capable of doing some damage in February and March. All right, joining me for this week's mailbag, you already heard his voice. He's a columnist for the big lead, a co-host of The Hangover, and he may soon be in the running to be USC's new offensive coordinator. What's going on there? He is Ryan Phillips. Ryan, anything to uh, rant about today? I don't think I want that job at this point, really. Let's be honest. Uh, although, I guess apparently if you sign up, no matter what your track record is, if you sign up as USC's offensive coordinator, you'll get offered NFL head coaching jobs, regardless of what your track record is. So. It's a ridiculous story. It really is. Continue failing upward, Cliff Kingsbury. <laughs> Woo! Um, he's like the new Lane Kiffin. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on the fight that Indiana showed. I, I, I It doesn't make me feel, I, I would say, it doesn't make me feel good about that game, but it, it certainly makes me see the the brighter side of the coin. I mean, it's, you know, there are positives you can take from a loss, and and that's certainly a positive. And we've seen though, over the last two years, the Archie Miller's teams have fought. I mean, there's no there's no question about that. The, those the the Hoosiers under Archie Miller do not stop playing and they do not stop fighting. And um even against Duke this year, they were still playing hard. They were just outmanned. And and so it is a positive to see that. You're right. We got to get these these starts under control, though. I mean, because it's it's been consistent. It hasn't just been against good teams. It's been consistent that they start slowly. So um, that's something they have to work on. <laughs> I'm sure Archie's aware of that. I'm sure everybody on the team is aware of that. And I'm sure he's nobody... made that quite clear in his postgame comments on his radio show that he's... Yeah. And and I'm sure that it's one of those things where even the players are just like, I don't know what it is. Like, we don't know what it is, but you've got to unlock whatever is going on there. And we talked about it in the postgame show. If you guys want to go back and listen to what our solutions were. And, um, you know, I think simplifying the offense is number one. Just get it to Juwan Morgan and let him work. But even against Michigan, Juwan Morgan, one of his first seven. So 
I, you're not going to win on the road. I mean, I know he wound up having a great game, but you're not going to win on the road when your star players don't step up early and put pressure on the opponent, and uh, especially against a good team. So, yeah, I think uh, that's it, it's just something they've got to figure out, and it's their bugaboo right now. And really, if you look at what Indiana has done, other than free throw shooting, which has gotten under control over the last couple of weeks, and maybe you'd like to have some guys hitting some more threes, the only complaint you have about this team is the starts. I mean, everything else they're doing pretty well and, and maybe not they're they're not like excelling and dominating, but they're doing pretty well and looking like they're improving. So the slow starts are really the one thing that's kind of hanging on this team and, and needs to get better. All right. So on tap for today, Ryan and I are going to answer some of your questions. Uh, and then we're going to take a look uh, at IU and around the big 10 with Mike DeCourcy as we do. Now we already did basketball 201 with Ben Ladner. So if you're watching this live, the replay is already in the YouTube feed. If you're listening on the podcast, that audio will be in segment three here, just like it always is. Uh, and then at the end of the show, I will preview IU Maryland. All of that coming this week on Banner Monday. Uh, before we get to that, just a quick reminder that when you need IU basketball tickets, use the URL uh, iutickets.shop. Go to SeatGeek. You will find the best values on IU tickets there, whether you want to go see a game in a road venue, see a game at Simon Scott Assembly Hall. And when you use that URL, iutickets.shop, you help out the show as well. So iutickets.shop, whenever you need tickets, not just to basketball games, but concerts, anything, uh, USC football games, if that's your thing, uh, sure anything. Will. Yeah, anything that you want to see, uh, go to SeatGeek and use that URL, iutickets.shop. All right, Ryan, let's hit up some questions here. So the first question is from Tom. Uh, we probably got this in 8,000 different versions. Will Rob be able to start the next game? We do not know. There has been nothing official. I didn't see Archie really say anything about it on his radio show. There is a media availability on Thursday. That's when I would expect to have an answer yep. to this. Otherwise, we just don't know. Yep. Um, I mean, that's, that's all. I mean, especially with medical stuff, they're not going to tell us until... It's all settled. I mean, they, they really, they, Indiana has shown that over the years. They don't release any medical information. They will update injuries usually before games, and that's it. Yep. And it'll um, usually be like, this guy can play, not like what's wrong with him. Mm -hmm. so. Okay, so here's another question that we've gotten. This is from Scott. So he says, what is the deal with IU's concussion protocol? I like that we're being extra cautious with these kids' brains, but I'm starting to really believe that during practice, they're playing bowling ball, dodgeball, instead of getting their free throw reps in. Obviously, Scott being a little bit sarcastic there. But we have gotten a lot of comments about this. You know, some very supportive, a few, you know, kind of sarcastic, and a few that kind of almost seem accusatory, like Indiana is doing something they shouldn't do and keeping these kids from playing because NFL players used to come back after a week. And so I, I actually went today and read the concussion protocol. And there are a couple of things that are in there that I just want to read real quick, Ryan, and then I'll get your take on this. And then I want to kind of put this issue to bed because I don't want to keep talking about it, but there's still a narrative out there that I want to combat. Number one, you can go to assemblycall.com slash concussion. That will redirect you to Indiana's official concussion protocol. They follow the NCAA standards. If you go to that URL, you can read the whole thing yourself and get some questions answered. A few quotes. It follows the direction and guidelines of the NCAA's concussion safety protocol committee and is compliant with a concussion management plan recommended by the committee. Okay, so Indiana is doing what the NCAA recommends. The duration it takes to return to activity is completely individualized to the particular student athlete and is not based on any arbitrary time frame. 
In addition to that, this progression can take anywhere from days to weeks, and the speed with which the athlete moves through this progression is dependent on multiple factors, and they list a lot of factors. It can be you know, the presence of ADHD, the presence of drug and alcohol abuse, the presence of you know, other memory issues that you've had, family history, illnesses, on and on and on. There are a lot of different things that could contribute to how quickly or slowly a player moves through the protocol. And then finally, it is essential that the athlete is completely completely asymptomatic before any final clearance for return to play. So every player takes a baseline test. Once a concussion, once they even think that there's a concussion, they will then perform a series of tests, including that baseline test to see where the player is. All right. They have to fully pass that. And then they start kind of stepping up physical activity and they might, you know, jog for 15 minutes. And if they can do that without headaches, then they'll move on to the next thing all the way up to actually being able to do you know, full contact for whatever that sport is, and they have to be totally asymptomatic. And then often a new baseline test will be taken you know, some period of time later to see if it's changed based on the previous concussion. So I just want to lay all that out there. That is what they are doing. Indiana is not, and I talk, you know, spoke with some sources inside the program, Indiana is not doing anything you know, outside of what is normal and what the NCAA does. They're following this protocol, which is exactly what they should be doing, and that's that's what's going to have to happen. Until they are asymptomatic, they are not going to be back on the court. That's exactly how it should be, and I'd even be fine if they were like, let's just wait until a week after they're asymptomatic just to be safe. If that's what they wanted to do, I'd be fine with that. Not saying that they are. I'm just saying I would err on the side of caution myself. It's worth noting on the on the race Thompson thing. I think it was reported that his sister had had serious concussion issues, and it, you listed family history as one of the things. And that might be he might have to pass the test at a higher threshold or something, you know, because of that. So it's again worth noting everything here. The these people want these kids on the court, like you know, the idea that like they're holding them out for some reason. Though the, the, these people want these kids on the court, they root for these kids, they hope these kids. But they're also going to be strict on this stuff because they care about these kids as well. And people who talk about the NFL, the NFL has had a long history of ignoring concussions and ignoring the importance of head injuries and all of that stuff. So let's not use them as the baseline for anything. Um, And the NFL knew for decades what concussions did to your brain and did you know hid the information and all of that so, so let's let's not use them as the example of how to do anything right because they don't do anything right frankly and, and, and i do understand you know, jamie makes a good point in the chat you know he says never remember seeing college basketball team with two players out agree like it's kind of unprecedented territory number one because these were kind of unique injuries i mean you saw what happened to rob when he took the knee to the head and from everything i've heard about what happened to race that was a violent collision that happened in practice so, you know, that's going to create also, those issues and people are a lot more cautious. We know more about it now, so it's taken more seriously. So you can't really base this based on the context of the past or history. Yeah. 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 Based on the history. And as Archie said, you know, it was either in his postgame press conference or his radio show, you know, he can't really remember this, um, just this crazy amount of injuries. It's just this team's just kind of snake bitten right now. And we all just need to, you know, just need to kind of get through it and realize it's kind of an anomalous thing. But we'll probably start to see more guys out for longer period of time with concussions, which is how it should be. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the, again, it's new territory. That's that's the reason why you've never seen the team with two guys out with concussions because it's just they're handling them differently now. And and by the way, 
teams, I, from what I understand, teams don't have to follow the NCAA guidelines. And so they may be playing players with concussions. Indiana's doing the right thing by yes. following those guidelines. Yes. Yes, they are. Okay, let's get into some... Uh, and, and hopefully that's the last we have to talk about this until Rob and Race come back. And we can just refer people back to this episode. But I wanted to hit it one more time because we did get a lot of questions on it. Okay, Jane asks the other most obvious question. How is the coaching staff going to eliminate slow starts? We talked about this some on the postgame show. The one word that Archie Miller has brought up since we, you know, since we talked about that, Ryan, is toughness. And he said he just doesn't think the team is very tough coming out. Uh, you know, we talked about some of the things offensively that we think they should do. One other point that we brought up in the mission game, and, and I agree, I, you know, I didn't think they were very tough defensively. And actually, when Ben and I went over some clips from how they played defense early, guys weren't really in stances. They weren't fighting through screens. It was kind of like they were easing their way into the game. You ease your way into the game against Michigan, they're going to blitz you, which is exactly what happened. Then we watch clips from the second half and late in the first half. Guys are in stances. They're fighting through screens. They look totally different. And so they came out flat. I mean, that's the, yeah, and, there and, wasn't intensity. Yeah. And, and that is toughness. You know, that's coming right out and being ready to go, you know, from the beginning, mental and physical toughness. So I think part of that will get better when you have more depth. Because again, guys playing 35, 36, 37 minutes, there's probably a natural tendency to coast a little bit early because you may be trying to save some because you know you're going to have to play the whole game. So knowing that you have some depth you can trust behind you. But then I think the other thing is just guys like Juwan Morgan and the leaders on the team taking it upon themselves to set that example from the tip. It's not complicated. Agreed. It's just going to have to be a mental shift, really, that these guys make. Um, and maybe there's a few, you know, tactical things you can do offensively to, you know, get some more buckets that help get you more pep in your step. But a lot of it's going to be on the defensive end too. And that it's just, it's an adjustment the guys are going to have to make, and it's going to have to start with the leaders. And that's, it's not necessarily to criticize the leaders. It's just the re you know, the reality that those kind of tones are set by your leaders Agreed. and your experienced no, guys and they it, have to do it. it. And, and Romeo's a freshman, but he's a leader. He's got to be a leader, and he's got to be an ex a guy who sets an example. And that's tough on a freshman. It is. I don't care if you're a five-star or a one-star. You come in, and you're the, the one of the leading scorers, and you're who you are. You're Romeo Langford. You've got to set the tone as well. And, and like he did against Marquette. Remember his defense yeah. early in the Marquette mm -hmm. game? But it's, you know, guys look to you. And guys, you know, or even guys who are older than you look to you to to do some things. And I, I would say that Juwan Morgan, again, another guy who we love Juwan. He wound up having a great game. But the way you start the game sets a tone, especially when you're playing a top team on the road. You've got to come out and set that tone early. And and they didn't. And and they got almost got run off the floor. And then obviously they locked in. And and it was almost like they're not warmed up enough going into games or something. Because you're right, they're stiff. They don't. Uh, the intensity isn't there, so I would say, yeah, something something's got to give there, and and I think that you've got to look to the leaders. I think it's also worth noting, and and we've mentioned this a few times this year, and it doesn't seem like it because Jawan Morgan uh, it plays such a prominent role, but this is a very young team, and they're they do they make young team mistakes at times, and and it's a young and inexperienced team, I would say, and again when you make those kind of mistakes consistently, you look at it and you say, well, yeah, I mean, young team on the road against a top team, that's what happens. But we're so reliant on a senior that it's, it might, it maybe gets lost that this is, you know, Oh, well, they're clearly a veteran team. No, it's not. And, and, and Juwan Morgan really has to make up for a lot. And I mean, that's unfortunate to put that much on him, but that's what has to happen. 
your senior superstar captain always faces an unfair burden. Like it's just, Agreed. it's, it's the territory and it's actually a compliment to Juwan. I like in a weird way, it's a compliment that he gets criticized for some of those things. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. it, that's just what the expectations are. He, so he set the, his own expectations so high with some of his performances that, I mean, he took the team on his back against Butler and was unbelievable. And, and when you do that, it's, Okay, well, I guess I guess that's what we're expecting now. And you know you're not gonna get that every game, but you expect to rely on that guy in big games. Yep. Okay. Uh this next question will go to you first with an answer here, Ryan. This is from Tim. Uh why has Evan Fitzner San Diego guy seemingly regressed so dramatically? Is it because the Marquette game was an anomaly that was never really reflective of his talent, or is there something about the quote Miller system that makes Evan or any three point specialist a bad fit? Do you see the potential for it improving? Or should we consider Evans' eagerly anticipated contributions a write-off for the remainder of the season? I, I know what I think about this. What do you think? I, I'm not sure. Um, I, it, you know, I, I've always felt about Fitzner that he was a guy who maybe one game every couple would have like a really nice game, and and maybe in February we're going to see him go off for 20 against somebody, and then not hear from him for a few games, and then have him go off for 20 again. Uh, the problem is, is that he was relied upon as a shooter pretty much primarily, and teams are overplaying his three-point shot. And and the fact that he's 6'10", he should still be able to get that shot off, but I feel like his confidence is just shot right now. And, it, you know, when you're not offering a ton defensively, he offers some length, but you're not offering a ton, and a guy like Deron Davis is playing well when he's in there, I think it's tough to find minutes. And I think Archie would rather have the speed of the, some of the smaller players and then then have Fitzner out there. They do need to get him in rhythm, though, because they need somebody who can stretch the floor, and and Fitzner can do that, and I just think his confidence is shot right now because you watch him early in the year, you watch him in the preseason, Duke can shoot it. He really can, and he really hasn't gotten any opportunities lately. I think he's a perfect candidate to do some pick-and-pop stuff, but his teammates have to have confidence in him, too, to, to give him that you know, give him that pass. And and I think that if you set him up at the top of the screen with at the top of uh, the key with, you know, Rob or uh, Devonte green or, or Jawan Morgan or somebody and just do some pick and pop stuff. I think you can get him some open looks. The key is he's got to knock him down and, yep. and uh, whatever's going on with him. He needs to fall out of that funk because we're going to need a three point shooter at some point this year. Um, I didn't come. I didn't think as people, talked about him coming in i did not think he was going to be max bielfeld I, I but i thought that hey tall guy who can shoot that can help you and uh i'd like to see <clears throat> excuse me see them work the way they have with justin smith to kind of get him some confidence and get him to a baseline point where he can at least contribute something every game truly a professional job they were fighting through a yawn and a hiccup within one answer that was yeah i know <laughs> That was great stuff. <laughs> it's earlier out here, my friend. Um, yeah, I, I generally agree with you. Archie said, and I think it was in the post-game press conference, like maybe we've got to do some stuff to get Evan a shot early, get his confidence going. And I agree. Like I just think, you know, Indiana doesn't have enough guys right now that are penetrating and creating and drawing the defense to get Evan a lot of open looks. And maybe as the ball's in Romeo's hands more, he can start to do some more of that. And, and you know, when you get Rob in there... Romeo would be great. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and everybody Evan, follows Romeo when he drives. Yeah, and Evan was doing a little bit better when Rob was in there too, you know? So I think it, as maybe as you get some of that going, that'll help. But, you know, we did say he's probably a guy that's going to have, you know, 
you know, two, three, four, five, like really big games in the Big Ten and help you win them, but might also disappear for others because the matchups are, aren't going to be good. That's still generally how I think. You know, again, I think we've, we've got to weather this tough stretch in January, but I still think he's a guy that February and March can be an important player and is going to help win Indiana some games and we need some shooting. So I understand the frustrations and, you know, he does, <laughs> coaching staff does, but I think we need to be a, a little bit patient with him because I think he'll really benefit also from Indiana getting more of its guys back so he can play more in the role where he's supposed to play. Um, well, and the perfect spot for him right now, if they're not doing pick and pop stuff is to have he and Deron Davis on the floor at the same time where the double has to, where you force it, you set up the offense. So the double has to come from him and Deron can find, you know, when you throw it into Deron, because Deron's drawing so much attention when he isn't, even though he's playing limited minutes, when he's in there, they're often doubling. And because he's so good on the block, and if you do that and you set it up so Evans' guy has to double, then you get your open looks. And um, But again, that's kind of tough to do because then you got two big guys who aren't exactly fleet of foot defensively out there. And you know where Archie's going to default to. And he's going to default to defense. And he's always done that. And uh, he should. And that that's his bread and butter. And that's what this team has improved so much on is defensively. All right, Ryan, uh, this next question is from IUDSW. Uh, this is a guy that we haven't seen a lot, so it's fun every now and then to reflect on and remember what he hopefully will bring to the table when he comes back. Is Jerome Hunter considered a, quote, score? I hate to look ahead, but where will points come from next year without Juwan and presumably Romeo? Trace Jackson Davis has post-ability, but who will be able to score consistently? So you do want to give us a quick recap of your Jerome Hunter scouting report, because unfortunately we can't really update it too much uh, since then. Yeah, uh, Jerome is a guy who's really good off the bounce. Uh, he is a natural scorer, but he's also very efficient. Like, he's not going to take a bad shot. He almost never takes bad I'm sure that next year, I'm assuming he doesn't play till next year, year uh, I'm, I'm i'm sure that next year as a freshman he'll take some bad shots because for, that's what freshmen do uh but he's a guy who can score off the bounce who is uh just he understands the game really well which impressed me because he's not a guy who's played basketball his entire life and he's just a guy who understands the flow of the game he knows when he brings the ball and when he, whenever he was bringing the ball up in high school he knew when to when to when to pull up when to pass when to drive when to drive and pull up and, and uh, driving kick, all that stuff. He just had a really great innate sense of basketball. And um, I was really looking forward to seeing him this year. Now, next year, is he going to replace Romeo? No, of course not. You know, Romeo is an all everything guy. Uh, but I think Jerome is the guy who can fill that role. Uh, again, not to Romeo's level, but I think he can fill that role on the offense. And then you get Trace Jackson Davis. And you, are, I mean, it's going to be a different offense next year. It's just going to look different. And uh, because of the the different makeup of the players, but you've got then you've got Trace Jackson Davis, then you've got mm, dare I say Keon Brooks, another guy who can slash and shoot and do some different things. You get him out there. You get Rob Finnessy. You get Race Thompson. You get you know. It, it, so next year, I, I've been saying it for a while, and people were questioning it and and thinking I'm crazy, but I've been saying I think next year's team may actually be better than this year's team. Now, will they? Will we have an individual as good as Romeo Langford or an individual as good as Juwan Morgan? Maybe not, but the collective talent of the team is going to be higher. I think there's no question about that because you lose Juwan Morgan, you lose Zach McRoberts, you lose Romeo, but you've got the five freshmen from this year getting a year older. You've got hopefully Devontae Green taking another step. You've got, you know, Deron Davis being healthy and being able to dominate on the block. And then you've got this next recruiting class coming in. And that's the way 
that's what the goal of your program is. And I feel like there's been fits and starts with Indiana where you've had a great team and then everybody leaves and it's a big drop off. The, the goal is to have waves of guys coming <clears throat> so that every year you've got a baseline of program players who were there for three, four years. And then you've got these waves of talent coming that improve it every time. And it's, it's, Instead of just being a wave and a crash, it's it's just a constant kind of flow of talent into the program. That's the goal, and that's what we're going to have next year. Now, what, does that happen again in 2020, 2021? I don't know, but the way the program is set up right now, everything is flowing in that direction. So that's why I think that next year will be a more talented team, and I think could be a better team because it's also going to be more... I feel balanced and not as reliant on two guys as it is with Romeo Lankford and Juwan Morgan. I think it'd be a more balanced attack. Um, as for Jerome Hunter, yes, I think that he's a guy who can score and he can definitely do some stuff off the dribble. Obviously, we haven't seen it at the college level, so I don't know how it's going to translate right away, but he's a guy that I had very high hopes for. I thought watching his junior film, and then watching the beginning of his senior year, I thought he was a guy who could creep up into the five-star territory. He was a four-star. I think he was, what, like 50th in the nation or around there, like yeah. middle of the, the top 100. And I thought it easily he could have creeped up into the back of that five-star category because of just what he can do on the court. But his competition wasn't as great as some of the other uh, top recruits. So I think that that hurt him a little bit. You mentioned the balance scoring. I would just say balance scoring isn't always better, and that's going to be a big challenge. No. No, but the other thing is, you know, that you know what I mean, though. No, no, I do. I do. You know, the equa- different guys can step up every game, you know. And, and that discussion is also different now because, you know, we look at this year. I mean, if next year's team is just healthy, like they might end up being yeah. better than this year because we've, yeah. you know, this year's team has become so reliant on those two guys because Jerome's out, Rob's out. Thinking? So many guys are injured. Like it's just, you know, it's, it's just kind of how things have gone. So for sure. No, and, and, and when I say balance scoring, I just mean that there's more guys who can do things for you. Um, you yeah. might have a guy like Trace Jackson Davis scoring 20 a game. I mean, I don't know if that's if that's going to happen, but I'm just saying you might have a guy like he or Keon Brooks being your leading scorer by a lot, or you know those two guys scoring more than everybody else. But I do feel like there's going to be more guys who can do things for you next year than there are this year. And that's not a knock on this year's team because this year's team is good. It's just a different way of being good than when a lot of guys can attack. And, and, that puts when a lot of guys can attack, it puts so much pressure on defenses. But Juwan Morgan and Romeo Lankford also put a ton of pressure on defenses. So I, I just think it's a different type of makeup that may actually wind up being better in Archie Miller's system. Yeah. Whereas this year you have, you know, two guys averaging 18, 19 a game and really no one else over like what, seven or eight. Next yeah. year, your leading scorer could have 13 points, but you might have four guys in double digits. You know, it could be exactly it could be something yeah. like that. Right. But in any one game, a couple of those guys could go for 20, you know, and, and 25 or whatever. But yeah, as you said, it's, it's a different style of team, um, clearly on the horizon, but, uh, I don't think necessarily that's a bad thing. All right, Ryan, I know you have a radio spot to go do with Kent Sterling. Any profound final thoughts before we bid you adieu? Tune into, uh, Kent Sterling show. And, no, uh, don't tune into Kent Sterling's show. We got Mike DeCourcy coming at on four, here. It's, it, yeah, I got a half hour. You got oh, okay. a half hour to finish. It's, it's at 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 o'clock Pacific. For all you Pacific folks listening in, I'm sure there's a ton of you. <laughs> yeah. uh, on uh, CBS 1430 with Kent Sterling. I'll be there. Cool. Oh, and uh, big, thebiglead.com. We have a ton of championship game uh, recap today. It's all very good, I, I, I have to say. I think this audience loves Clemson and Alabama football, let me tell you. 
Yeah, but you know what? There's some making fun of Clemson and Alabama football that you will enjoy. Like the, <laughs> okay. the video of the fake field goal last night in which Nick Saban decided to have oh. his freshman walk-on kicker as the lead blocker, which was in, into 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 Clemson's starting defensive line, not even their special teams group. So, yeah, that was fun to watch. It's a play that horrendous. That's what it takes to second-guess Nick Saban is a play that horrendous because yeah. that was... Yes, that was pretty bad as it gets. (laughs) Okay. All right, coming up on the Assembly Call, it is time for our Big Ten Roundup with Mike DeCourcy from BTN and the Sporting News. We'll get his thoughts on Indiana's performances against Illinois and Michigan and then take a look around the conference. Stick with us here on the Assembly Call. Welcome back to Banner Monday on Tuesday. Each week here in our second segment, we zoom out to get an objective opinion on our Hoosiers and to look at how things are going across the Big Ten Conference. And there is no one better to do that than Mike DeCourcy, who covers Big Ten Hoops for BTN, in addition to his columns for the Sporting News. Mike, welcome back to Banner Monday here on Tuesday. Thank you, Jared. Great to be back after our long break. Yes, yes, it was a long break, but we're back and the games are coming fast. They're coming furious and the carnage has already begun here in Big Ten play. So we'll start with Indiana. The Hoosiers went one and one last week. What were your biggest takeaways from the win over Illinois and the loss to Michigan? Well, my biggest takeaway is that the absence of Robert Finnessy is really punitive, as well as Devontae Green has played. And I don't have any problem with the way he's played. I just think we know now for certain that they're a better basketball team with Robert out there and Devontae playing the role that he's very effective at being able to play multiple positions, being able to be an energy boost, being able to be a defensive boost uh, in, in terms of just saying, okay, go get that guy. Cause he's bothering us. Uh, I, I think you lose a lot of that when he has to be your primary point guard and you lose a sense of definition to your offense that, that I thought was lacking, especially in Ann Arbor, but also to, to a, an extent for a lot of the time in the Illinois game. And what you're also losing is, a player who is a, I think, has a better sense of his shot, not of when to shoot. I guess I should say, I, I, Devontae's a fine shooter, and but I, I think as a point guard, he's somewhere caught sometimes between should I shoot this or should I not, uh, and or maybe he's caught between I know I should shoot this because that's what I've always done, and maybe he shouldn't, and so I think that's the that's been a problem for them, and. It, it 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 certainly was reflected in the in the loss at 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 Michigan. What I loved about the Michigan game was that that was an easy game. Number th- two team, number three team in the country, undefeated on the road. You're not playing well. You're way down. It'd be the easiest game in the world to say, let's just take a 25 point loss and get on the bus. And they fought all the way to the end. And I thought that that was a, a really significant statement that they made. And it, it, you could sit here and say, oh, moral victory, Indiana has five banners, no need to. No, that's not how teams build themselves. I mean, you build yourself by saying, no, we're not getting on that bus with a 25-point loss, even if everybody will say it's okay because they're great and we're developing and we don't have a point guard. We say we're getting on that bus having played the best basketball we can possibly play between now and the end of the buzzer. And I thought that they absolutely did that. 
Absolutely. That was that was what my banner moment was about. So I appreciate you backing me up on that because it's it's kind of a tricky subject, you know, and, and Archie himself. You know, I remember after the Duke game last year when people wanted to claim a moral victory and Archie was very quick to claim no moral victories. And as a coach, you probably can and should do that. But I think, you know, you make a good point that you have to be able to take those moments of growth within games, even when they're losses, as something meaningful because they are meaningful. Well, if you say to your, if, like you come on saying the public, no moral victory, all that stuff. But if you're saying it, to your players that how you perform between when the game is effectively decided and the final buzzer, then what's the point of that whole, oh, I coach every possession to the end, so I'm still coaching the walk-ons just like it matters. I mean, all that stuff is just, is, is, is empty noise. And I don't believe that coaches really think that. I think there's some, they sometimes try to tell reporters that, you know, that the, the line about no moral victories because they don't want fans to come back at them and, and claim that the, the coach is trying to get away with, you know, with something when he didn't win. Uh, but the reality is that every possession matters it, or they wouldn't do that. They would just say they would just sit down and, hey, guys, go ahead and do whatever for the next five minutes. This game's won or this game's lost. And you, you see coaches work really hard in those times to work on situations if the game is lost, to they, they call timeout and say, okay, remember you're down 20 and, and, and what you did to get here. Or you call timeout with nine minutes left and the game's starting to get away from you and say, hey, you know, don't worry about the scoreboard. Worry about, you know, what you do between now and the next TV timeout. Let's win that. And they do that all the time because that's how you build a team and build a season. I want to ask you, Mike, about injuries and get your perspective on this because – you know, injuries can be kind of a hard thing to discuss from a fan perspective, you know, because the wins and losses still count and they right. still matter, even as you have injured players. So you don't want to make excuses. And yet injuries can also be a legitimate explanation for why a team isn't playing as good as might otherwise be expected. So how do you assess the impact of injuries when you're analyzing team performance? I think the first thing you have to do is differentiate between two kinds of injuries. There are the long term. They're not coming back injuries. Uh, Kalina, uh, excuse me, uh, Doka Azabuke this year, um, what happened uh, it, it, with him being unavailable uh, to play the rest of the year is, okay, we got to be different now, or we got to be this team now. And okay, what do we do to try to get over this? Or you have what Indiana has gone through throughout this year, which is okay, we got to get through this game because that guy's not playing and we have to do these things without him and or they have these multiple guys without him. And, but when you have those kinds of injuries, you not only have to survive the near term, what do we do to get by without him? But then you have the residual effect of what you're not getting better at while those players or player are absent. I mean, Zach McRoberts is only beginning at, I think the, the Illinois game was the first time I saw Zach McRoberts play this year. I've seen the guy wearing his number, but he hasn't been himself until that game. And so that's there's that part of it. And then there's also the part of it where it, Robert was really good. Let's say for a freshman point guard, he's playing at an A-minus level uh, when he gets hurt. And he may come back and play at the same A minus level if when when he returns. Let's, you know, let's hope that's the case. But what you're missing is that okay, I think he's now missed 3 games. You're supposed to get better in those 3 games. You're not getting better in those 3 games. There may be elements of the game you are getting better at, but as a team, as the ideal Indiana unit, 
you are not improving because you are not the ideal Indiana unit. So that sets you back a little bit. And it doesn't have to result in wins or losses or the other thing, uh, but it does affect where you stand. Let's say he returns in a game. Well, where you stand on that day and then maybe where you stand at the end of January that you might have been, you know, a half a lap farther ahead than you are. And can you then make up that half lap while you're also making the progress that you're supposed to make between February 1st and February 15th? That's the, that, it's all a very complicated equation. And I think most fans, and I've been guilty of this at, myself uh, in my time as a fan, is you just think, okay, they're back, and so now we're good again. Uh, now everything's fine. And in fact, it's, it's not that simple. It can be dealt with and it can be covered, but it does complicate the coach's season and complicates the team's season as they try to get to where you want them to go. One other uh, question for you about Indiana before we move on. The big issue for Indiana so far this season has been slow starts. We saw it against Michigan. We saw it in other games. Just those teams weren't as good as Michigan to be able to just blitz them right off the bat. When you see a team that has an issue like that, that is so persistent, is that something that you think that they can correct, or is that just part of this team's DNA? Or like, do you have maybe any examples, I guess, from the past of a team that had an issue like that and was able to correct it you know, midway through the season? Well, I think all teams can adjust themselves. Uh, and I think the first thing you have to look at when you are getting off to slow starts on a consistent basis is, are you starting the right guys? It may seem like that they are the five players who would logically be the right unit, but are you you're start you're, are you starting slowly in the second half as well? Because you know one of the things I always say when people say it doesn't matter who starts, I say, well, okay, here's the deal. Almost every coach in almost every situation starts the same five guys at you know not necessarily game to game, but if he starts these five players at the beginning of the game, he starts the same five players at the start of the second half, which means that he's effectively playing the same players together for 10 minutes of the game. That's a quarter of the game. If you're going to tell me it doesn't matter how those guys play together, you're kidding yourself. So it, I, I, would, I would then say, okay, if you're getting off to a bad start in those first five minutes, are you also getting off to a bad start in the first five minutes of the second half on a consistent basis? If you're not, then it's an attitude thing. If it's not a technical, chemical uh, thing between your players, then it's how do you, you know, how do you warm up? How do you get ready? Are you, you know, are, how, how does your point guard say, okay, here's, we set the tone, all those sorts of things. And I think that's, that's a, again, that, that has to be solved through emphasis. We cannot continue to fall behind or play poorly in those first five minutes of every game, just because that's what we do. It's yeah. It, because again, those five minutes are, are one eighth of the game. And so if you're going to be consistently bad in one eighth of the game, that's going to be a problem for you. That's a big chunk of the time that you play. And Indiana, definitely a team that they start the same guys first half, second half, but we've been awesome at the start of second halves. And Archie even said, you know, it's a, it's a toughness thing. So I think, you know, I think he has a handle on the problem. Now it'll just be, you know, if they can address it and, and, and fix it and make it better. All right, let's, uh, let's step back. Let's take a look around the Big Ten. We'll start with power rankings. What is your current top four? I believe the last time we spoke, Indiana was in it. I believe the Hoosiers were fourth. Are the Hoosiers still in it? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Number one has not changed, will not change. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose it might at some point, but uh, there's no reason to now. Michigan is playing fantastic basketball still. We saw that on Sunday against the Hoosiers. Uh, Jordan Poole is becoming 
just a, a phenomenal Big Ten player. Uh, uh, I, I think that uh, Xavier Simpson's been wonderful, and and I yeah I thought Charles Matthews on on Sunday played as well as he's played this season. So they continue to escalate uh, as a team, and and there, there's going to be a time when they drop a game, and everybody's going to go, hey, what happened, and 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 start to worry. But they're they're going to be dynamite from now till the end of the year. Uh, number two, easy Michigan State, also playing without a key player, Joshua Langford, but covering for him very well. This has been this is like uh, Arn's uh, dream season because uh, on one hand you get Matt McQuaid hurt, and then you get uh, Joshua Langford hurt, and then you're a starter for you know for half the year. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that he doesn't want his guys to get hurt, but it's worked out great for him. And what you know, I, I, he's an interesting player to me because I saw him play in high school, in AAU, whatever, uh, at the Peach Jam as an under, I guess the second then is like 16 and under is the second division at the Peach Jam. And I happened to be talking to a coach and so uh, sat at state seated. I don't always watch the 16s because you only get so many breaks in those tournaments. And I watched him play and he was a, a summer teammate of of uh, Kennard, Luke Kennard, uh, who went to Duke and and uh, and is now in the NBA. And I thought he was a really nice player. I wondered if Michigan State was the right place for him because I didn't know if he was quite uh, dynamic enough. And he he's a guy who sat there for three years, barely played, and now is getting to be a high-level contributor on a team that is starting to believe it can make the Final Four. So, you know, big ups to him for not just saying, okay, I'm getting out of here because I'm not playing because uh, he's now a really important player for, for the Spartans. Uh, IU holding at number three. Uh, I'm not going to hold that game against them. Uh, the loss to uh, to Michigan. Everybody in the league is going to lose that game, with the possible exception of Michigan State uh, and maybe Ohio State because they tend to do well up there. But I don't, I'm not sure if either one of them goes. I, I'm pretty sure uh, Michigan State goes into Ann Arbor. I'm not sure if the Buckeyes do, but most of the teams that play there are going to lose there. So not a bad loss. Uh, and you're playing it as well without your point guard. So they're staying at number three. And then I'm going to slide Minnesota in at number four. Uh, they're still only two and one in the Big Ten, but they've got the best, I think the best road, you know, as good a road win as anybody has. Uh, Michigan State's got Ohio State, and they've got now Wisconsin. They really did a number on Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin, they took the Badgers out of everything they wanted to do. And so, I, plus they have the home win against Nebraska. So they got... They only have two wins, but those are stout wins uh, that the Gophers have. So I'm going to put them in at number two at this point. After watching, obviously, the Michigan-IU game and the Michigan State-Ohio State game, I think the individual matchup I'm most looking forward to in the conference this year is Cassius Winston against Xavier Simpson. I think that is going to be so much fun to watch. Are there any like one-on-one matchups like that? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of them that you're looking forward to, but do any kind of stand out now that you've seen you know, about 40% of the season? Well, first of all, I'm going to go with you, uh, agree with you on that for the reason that you're talking about the best offensive point guard in the country and the best defensive point guard in the country. So that's a great combination, right? The cash on the offensive side and Xavier on the defensive side. Plus, I could watch those hook shots all day long, just not against Indiana, but they're awesome. (laughs) They are amazing. And cash will have a hard time making uh, defending against those because it's, you know, he's not a he's not an elite defender to begin with. And. Uh, that's a, that's a tricky shot to have to deal with. 
you know, I, I would say that uh, one of the matchups that I'm really interested in seeing is Jalen Smith uh, against uh, against the front line from Minnesota uh, because they're so big and long and they have so much dynamism uh, at Minnesota. And I don't know which player they choose to defend Jalen with, uh, but they, they've got a lot of options there. Uh, Curry, maybe. Uh, and I, I think that that's a really interesting uh, matchup uh, for for Smith, who is developing. You know, I, I, when I was looking at this the other day, developing into a really impressive player. And I don't think that the scouts are catch, or the uh, the mock draft people are catching on to how talented he is. Uh, he was not, uh, you know, as big a name coming into this year as some freshmen are. Uh, but uh, he's playing at a really high level and and shooting the basketball. Look, he's he he is someone that you would not call a shooter, but he's also not someone you would call a non-shooter. So I think he has a chance to be a good shooter of the basketball from the perimeter. And when he adds that to his game, he's going to be really special. He's what six ten, right? See that right. tall? So uh, that's what they list. That's what they list. I have not been in the gym with him, so I couldn't gauge that. But uh, that's what they list. So he's uh, obviously Indiana plays Maryland on Friday. We're going to talk about that here coming up in the show. You know, one of the unsung stories from the Michigan game, I thought, was Justin Smith's terrific defense on Ignis Bresdakis. And he's been playing great defense for about a month now. I would assume Justin will draw the assignment of Jalen Smith, at least when the starters are out there, because Jawan is going to have to be on Bruno Fernando. I would imagine that's how they'll go. How do you see, you know, that particular matchup of Justin and Jalen and just that matchup of, of overall Justin and Jawan against Maryland's front court? You know, I think it's really interesting because uh, Justin Smith, it, there are moments when you see him do dynamic things and you think, boy, I wish I could see more of those. But what he's done in the interim in, 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 while you're waiting for that next big moment is he's quietly using that dynamism to just wreck everybody. And I love that because yeah. that's what I've been waiting for with him. You're wanting him to you look at him and you watch him and you say that guy has to be one of the best defenders in this league. And there's no excuse for him not to be. And now he's becoming that. So it's really exciting to see. It's a real challenge for him if that's the assignment he draws uh, because he does give up some size. But his athleticism, his dynamism uh, is a weapon against someone like James. He's going to have to use, he's going to have to be conscious of Smith's ability to get close to the rim and to use his length. And he's going to have to be able to hold up against that physically. Uh, not get worn down and not allow himself to get back down. Uh, but I think that that's, I think he's, uh, it's a really interesting matchup. Brazekis is right in his wheelhouse in terms of size and, and, and skill set. So if he's going to lock somebody up, that's somebody that you wouldn't be surprised by. But Smith is a much different sort of challenge for him. I'm really excited about seeing that matchup. How does he compare to Lamar Stevens? Because Justin did a good job on Stevens. I think Jalen Smith's about three inches taller than Lamar Stevens, yeah, isn't he? That's, yeah, yeah that's the same as same as Iggy. Uh, Iggy's six seven ish. Uh, so again, right, like I said, right, right in Justin's physical wheelhouse, Jalen is is taller, longer, handles the basketball really well, knows how to use his body and his handle to back you down, uh, and and knows how to use his length once he catches close. Uh, to finish over you. And so that's, you know, that's the challenge for Justin is to not get, you know, to, to try to stay in front of uh, uh, Jalen as much as he can without giving up too much backside. Um, but th those are all the challenges they're going to have to go through once they get, you know, once they get to game planning for that game. 
but it's a great challenge. It's a great challenge for him because you know, down the road, if he can do this job, we know now he can defend wings and we know he can defend stretch fours that are his size. Um, but if he can do this as well, there's a good chance when they get to March, they face somebody who has that kind of uh, length or skill set, maybe not identical, but similar. And you, you take some comfort from knowing that you, you've dealt with that matchup before. You talked a little bit about Minnesota. They obviously had a big win. What other teams, what other players caught your eye here the first week back in Big Ten play? Well, I, I thought, you know, I thought even though Northwestern did not play well, you know, I thought that uh, that that they had they got a lot of really good play out of Gaines. He was a plus eighteen in that game, and they were they were not good enough to be plus in anything. I mean, their shot selection was really poor, even on the game winning sequence. They take a shot that wasn't that wasn't a, a well advised shot. Uh, it gets batted around. Great play by Vic Law to retrieve it, it to to knock it loose, and then. I believe Pardon picks it up and fires it back out and Turner knocks it in. So they did not execute well shot selection wise. Uh, but in the second half, they shot the basketball really well. And Gaines was at the heart of that. I thought that was enormous for them. Uh, Wisconsin, Brad Davison is starting to play basketball uh, the way he's capable of. Uh, didn't, didn't, uh, they, they as a team did not have a great game in the Minnesota game. But they came back really well in the Penn State game. And Davidson, excuse me, Davidson is starting to shoot the basketball at a high level again. And a, a year ago, he was a pretty good shooter for a guy with, who was playing with one shoulder. And so one expected that he would come into this year and start draining shots. But coming off the basketball with Trice coming back in uh, really kind of fiddled with uh, his comfort and his confidence. And he's starting to get that back. And he executed a bounce pass. He, he drove the right baseline and executed a bounce pass through the lane past three defenders out to Trice for Trice's only three on Sunday. That I, if you if you see it, I, I tweeted it out yesterday. Uh, if you see it, it is I, it's going to be the most underrated play of the college basketball season because the English he puts on that ball so that it hits Trice right in the shooting pocket. I'm telling you, it just it's not a normal play and. So those those guys really uh, did a nice job to catch my eye this weekend. That was a beautiful pass. <laughs> it was <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I saw it. It was great. Um, so obviously, Indiana-Maryland, a big game on Friday. What other games coming up this week should everybody have their eye on? I think Michigan State plays Purdue, don't they? Yeah, they, that's actually uh, this evening. They play uh, Purdue. Uh, so that's a big game that, uh, that I would definitely look forward to uh, in the conference. And that is, you know, I think that what we're looking at as well uh, in the conference coming up over the weekend, uh, you're looking at some some really interesting games. I would say that the Sunday game involving Michigan and Northwestern, again, can Northwestern follow up what they did this past weekend by squeezing out a win, by starting to perform at the level that they did when they when they came to, to Bloomington? We, did, we have not seen them play as well, perhaps, in any game as they have, as they had in that game, they, they just, they, they have not been as sharp as they were since then. And then I think Saturday, the game uh, between Ohio state and Iowa, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, Iowa is, is one of those teams you know, they got to that top 25 ranking. Uh, I think they're somewhat a prisoner of that expectation level now. Uh, and so they've got to start to perform to that Sunday. They did. 
they, they got a big win over the weekend, and that was important, but they, they need to follow that up uh, by, by continuing uh, with their success at home against Ohio State. And last question for you, Mike. We had a few people brought this up in the chat, so it would be great to get your thoughts on it. Pat Chambers obviously had a moment uh, in their most recent game. For those who didn't see it, it was in a timeout. They have a freshman, Miles Dredd, a guard. I think I don't remember who they were playing, but they were losing, not playing particularly well. He, you know, kind of jawing at Miles Dredd and pushed him. Um, obviously, this drew. You know, he apologized for it. He got suspended for a game. Tom Izzo has come out, and I thought made some really interesting comments about it. And it was nice to see a coach like Tom Izzo at least be as candid about it. Um, Brendan Quinn wrote that piece on The Athletic, if you want to read it. But what were your thoughts on that whole situation? You know, my thoughts, first of all, were the, the, the first thing that bothered me about it was its sort of absence of true spontaneity. I mean, he was not involved in a conversation uh, with those players at that point. Those players were huddling in, you know, as a team, as a as a player group, and he broke into that huddle and then challenged Dredd in the way that he did. So I didn't think that that was appropriate from that standpoint. I, I covered Memphis in the, I think it was the 1994-95 season, and Larry, the late Larry Finch, a dear dear man who unfortunately left us uh, earlier part of the decade, um, was coaching then and. He did a very similar thing to David Vaughn, who was one of Memphis' star players then, played a little bit in the NBA. But David, first of all, was his nephew. Uh, so I think that differentiated a little bit. And the second thing that to me differentiated was that they were in a huddle. They, he was having uh, a dialogue or a, a, a monologue with his players and, and, and went to that. It, almost, it was an almost identical circumstance, the, the, the action, almost identical action. And so from that standpoint, I thought there was a differentiation there. I, I, it, it seemed more spontaneous when Larry did it back in the day. Um, the second thing I would say is that it, it is a coach's job to manage pressure. Uh, he, the pressure that is affecting uh, Patrick Chambers right now is different than the pressure that affects Tom Izzo from night to night. Tom Izzo's pressure is mostly self-induced. He has a standard that he believes that he should reach and that he should, and that his, and, and his job is to let, let uh, lift his players to reach the standard that he believes they should meet. That's a, that's the pressure that he applies to himself, but he's wealthy enough that he never works again. He'll be fine. Um, he's, he's at an age where if he didn't coach again, it retirement would not be out of sorts. So it's a different pressure for him. Patrick Chambers has not made the NCAA tournament as yet as a head basketball coach. And they came into this year with some veteran players that were talented enough uh, that although the backcourt was entirely new, there was an expectation that they might perform at a level where they could at least contend for that. It hasn't worked out that way to this point. Now they could get on a roll and win a bunch of Big Ten games. And if you win Big Ten games this year, they could mean something. Mm -hmm. It has not been to that level this point. So the pressure on him is different. Uh, and how you manage that pressure says a lot about you. And I think also you're in a circumstance where, like I said, the pressure is to, you know, to, to, to do enough to continue on. And you don't want to give people anything to distract from what your performance is. And, and by doing that, he gave people who already are predisposed his, to say his performance is not to the standard that they wish 
to say that there's one more thing that they may not care for about him. So I think from that point, you have to factor in a lot of elements when judging what happened. And I, I thought that uh, it was reasonable for him. I thought it was laudable for him to come in after the game and say, I was wrong. What I did was wrong. I apologize to Miles Dredd. That was laudable. But I also don't think it was inappropriate for his boss to say, I have to set a standard for my coaches, my head coaches and my assistants in all sports, lacrosse, uh, soccer, wrestling, whatever it is. Not sure if Penn State has a lacrosse team. I might be wrong there. (laughs) Volleyball, I know they have that. Uh, Everybody has to have a certain standard that they have to meet. And this does not meet the standard that that, that I hold as athletic director. I think that's a reasonable position for Sandy Barber to take. I had no problem with her action at all. I, I doubt uh, that Patrick Chambers was exceptionally surprised when he got the note or call or, or uh, in person, however it went down, that that was going to be how it was managed. If it had been longer than one game, I, it would have been really excessive. One game was plenty. The message was sent to both Patrick and everyone else that, that coaches there that that's not how you do business. Yep. Well, Mike, we kept you a little bit longer than normal this week, so thank you for being so generous with your time, and uh, we always appreciate your insights here on Banner Monday. Delighted to do it, Jared, on Tuesday. <laughs> yes. Next week, we'll be back on Monday. <laughs> All righty. So coming up, uh, it is time for Basketball 201. Ben Ladner will be here to talk about uh, Indiana's performance against Michigan, some of the things they didn't do well early, how they adjusted and got better later in the game. Stick with us here on the Assembly Call. Welcome back to this week's edition of Banner Monday. You know, here at the Assembly Call, we don't just want to make you a smarter IU basketball fan. We want to make you a smarter basketball fan, period. And that is the purpose of our Basketball 201 segments with Ben Ladner, a senior at IU, our intern this year, and our joint internship program with Inside the Holidays have been very popular segments. We haven't been able to do one uh, in a couple of weeks because of the holiday break, but very glad to have you back, Ben, so that we can uh, break down some film. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. It's weird doing a Banner Monday episode on a Tuesday afternoon, but it because is. of because <laughs> of school and scheduling and all that kind of stuff, it's been it's been shifted a little bit. But we'll you know we'll make do. I think that the name can still apply. This is the challenge of naming a show after a day. You, you're right. very yeah. you're very pigeonholed into that one day, and it makes things <laughs> awkward when you have a scheduling a conflict. Hey, we do want to let people know right off the top, scheduling wise. Your class schedule has changed. These are the things right. that you have to deal with on when you're when you're working with student interns. Yep. Your class yep. schedule has changed. So you are probably, well, not probably, you're not going to be able to be there for the regular Banner Mondays anymore. But you and I are both committed to keeping this segment going because people like it so much and we've really enjoyed it. So for the foreseeable future, we're going to do it Tuesdays at 2 Eastern as we're doing it this week. And probably I'll just you know, release it separately as its own podcast. The videos will obviously be on our YouTube channel in their own in their own feed. Um, so you can always go to youtube.com slash assembly call. But that's why this will be a little bit different. It's all going in one podcast this week, but it'll be different moving forward. So we'll figure that out, but we'll we'll keep the content coming because the segment is very popular. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. So let's um we're gonna talk about the IU Michigan game. And you and I kind of went back and forth today trying to figure out what the theme would be. 
And really, I think the theme is going to be all of it, <laughs> like all the different yeah. stuff that we talked about. There were a lot of different elements of that game that were interesting, especially after the first 10 minutes, because I don't think anybody wants to spend too much time reliving that awfulness. Um, so no, not necessarily an overarching theme today, but just, you know, kind of different stuff Indiana did later in the game, maybe adjustments Indiana made after they got down big and it didn't lead to a victory, of course, but it did lead to some better play. Um, so with that said, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. So you threw out a couple themes, you know, Justin Smith on Braz Dacus, Romeo Langford, Charles Matthews, that matchup, you know, adjustments from first half to second half. And so when I went back and watched the, the game, I was kind of like, you know, we'll just, we'll do all of it. Like you said, you know, I couldn't really pick one um, particular thing that stood out because there was, there was a little bit of everything. I don't have video on all that stuff, but I, I, I took some notes on all of it and, and there's kind of a lot to dive into as far as that. Um, full disclosure, I was driving from, from Atlanta to Indiana during this game. Um, so, but I went back and watched it this morning and yesterday. And so I've seen it a couple of times, kind of gone through it, reviewed some of the, the necessary things. And, um, you know, feel like I've got a pretty good grip. So rest assured, even though I didn't see it live, there is a, there is a knowledge knowledge base here that has come from watching. Let me ask you this before we just dive into the clips. What were your what was your overall impression of the game? And uh, it kind of went as I expected it to. You know, um, Seth Tao and I did a kind of a preview podcast, and I think I predicted the final score would be something like seventy five to sixty seven, and that was you know more or less in the ballpark of what it was. You know, Michigan's a better team than Indiana. They have better maybe not better top end talent at the absolute top but i think better depth of talent um i think john beeline is the best coach in the big 10 i i've i've thought that for the last couple of years i think they always just you know churn out great teams and given the fact that it was in ann arbor you know they have home court advantage they have a great team they're really rolling right now that outcome didn't really didn't necessarily surprise me what what you know i think i didn't expect was that indiana didn't really play all that well and was still kind of there they they never really got it you know within a possession or two down in crunch time but they they made some pushes they the lead kind of waxed and waned a little bit and so you saw some some flashes from indiana that maybe i didn't necessarily expect to see it's just a matter of piecing that together for a full game which they haven't really been able to do against good teams this season and credit michigan for that it's a big part of it because they're a great team and they were able to take indiana out of what they wanted to do particularly early in the game uh, you just really struggled getting into their offense but I thought later in the game, Indiana kind of figured some things out that they didn't in the first half. And and for a while there, Michigan and Indiana kind of seemed to be playing on the same level, which if you're an IU fan, I think that's a positive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it doesn't erase the uh, you know those awful first ten minutes, but some of the right. things they did over the final thirty minutes were at least encouraging. And as I mentioned, you know, in the banner moment off the top, there are things that North Carolina, Villanova, and Purdue didn't do. You know, Michigan really got up on those teams. And those teams never really pushed back. And so at least to Indiana's credit, they pushed back in part because of the top end talent. I mean, Romeo and Juwan, you yeah. know, had to play outstanding as they do every game for Indiana to compete. Um, but yeah, anyway. Uh, I, think, I think too, one other thing I would add is, is the depth for Indiana was not there and the injuries are a big part of that. Um, I would be really interested. I don't know if, you know, everyone's going to be healthy on this Indiana team by the time these two teams play again in late January. But if they are, I think that's going to be a much more compelling matchup. I think we'll learn a little bit more about both teams in that game than we did in this last one, just because Indiana was so thin. And Michigan didn't have Isaiah Livers for a lot of that game. But, you know, I think uh, the, the, the health kind of matchup was a little bit more lopsided in Michigan's favor because Indiana was just missing so many guys off the bench. And the guys they did play off the bench, they didn't really get that much from. Um, wow. 
So I, you know, I thought that was a little bit of of something that held Indiana back. Yeah, Rob and Duran really, I think, would have helped in that yeah. game. Rob obviously, and, and Duran would have been big off the bench. All right, let's uh, let's hit some clips. Yeah, so first clip here is from kind of earlier in the game, about the 17 minute mark. Michigan's got the ball here. Um, they're just running their half court offense, 19 on the shot clock, and this possession is going to wind up in a corner three for Charles Matthews. And one of the the things you mentioned as a possible topic here was kind of the matchup between Charles Matthews and Romeo Langford. And the biggest thing that stood out to me in that matchup is just how they got their points. You know, Charles Matthews, he plays on such a great team in Michigan that has Raz Dacus, it's got Jordan Poole, it's got Xavier Simpson, all these guys who can create their own offense and score the ball. Romeo Langford doesn't really have that, especially with Deron Davis and Rob Finnessy, two of the guys that are tasked with creating a lot of offense. Those guys not playing. It was really Romeo and Jawan Morgan doing all of the offensive creation in this game. And so I think just stylistically, you saw a big difference, even though they were guarding each other and, and you know, Matthews and Langford are kind of similar players, at least in profile and build the way they score their points and the way they get their offense is drastically different. Matthews was spotting up for three. He was able to cut, get on the offensive glass, kind of fly through passing lanes and get out in transition, just sort of pick his spots as he wanted to. Whereas with Romeo, it was kind of an every possession we need you to, to handle the ball, get to the basket, create your own offense. Uh, and he didn't really have that luxury of picking his spots and working off of other talented scorers in the same way that Matthews did. So in this, in this possession here, it's going to start on the left wing. And Michigan's really good about running through their sets. And here, I think we've talked about you know, different ways of guarding the pick and roll, how Indiana likes to hedge. We've been over all of that. And, you know, I've, I've always been a little bit skeptical of that strategy against teams that can really shoot it and teams that have good big men. And here is the reason why, because Juwan Morgan, who's guarding John Teske here, uh, kind of at the top of the key, Morgan, Smith's going to come through to guard Braz Dacus going out to the right wing. He's just going to filter through and it's going to be Jordan Poole and John Teske running a pick and roll. And as Morgan comes up to hedge the pick and roll, you stop it right there. Jordan Poole at Michigan, you know, they've done their homework. They've scouted. They know what's coming. Michigan knows this hedge is coming. Romeo Langford is guarding Charles Matthews here in the corner. And because John Teske, you know, he's not the greatest playmaking big. He's not, to make another NBA comparison, he's not Draymond Green. He's not just going to totally dice up your defense as a playmaker, but he's capable. And he can make some plays with the ball in his hands. And when these two defenders come to Jordan Poole, he does a good job getting rid of it early. And then when Teske catches it, Romeo Langford has to make a decision. He comes in to shut off this drive. Otherwise, it's an easy roll to the basket. And without putting the ball back on the floor, John Teske kicks it right back out to Charles Matthews for an open corner three. Later in the game, we saw Indiana get a little bit more conservative with their defense. I think part of it was because Jawan Morgan was in foul trouble. And so they weren't hedging as aggressively because that's a good way for big guys to pick up fouls. If you know you get out and you, you stick your hip out and you bump the, the ball handler, that's, you know, if that's your third or fourth foul, that can be really costly. So they kind of dropped the pick and roll a little bit, brought Morgan to the level of the ball and just sort of did a high drop shutting off the penetration, but not getting all the way out onto the floor. And it actually helped the rest of Indiana's defense on the back line because they weren't having to make those long rotations. It burned Indiana a couple times. And I think I've, I've got a video of that coming up a little bit later where Michigan was able to get some stuff off of you know the roll, even though Indiana was, was dropping. But that's just the nature of a good team. And I think here, you know, this is, this is just one of the kind of side effects of, of running this sort of pick and roll defense is you're giving the offense a four on three advantage. You're, you're voluntarily giving that up and teams like Michigan who are really, really good, really talented, have a lot of shooting are going to be able to exploit that. And I thought 
they did a good job going to that early and punishing Indiana for it early in the game. The thing that stands out to me about that clip, and again, that's early in the game, is how flat-footed everybody looks defensively, except for Justin Smith. Like Justin yep. Smith really stands out there the way he kind of you know fought through that screen, got you know stuck with Brazdakis. Like you could tell he was kind of taking on that challenge, which I thought he did most of the day because I thought his defense was really good, and Brazdakis had too. one of his worst days of the season. And you know, one of the issues that I've seen in some of the slower starts. And it, it's somewhat understandable given how many minutes these guys play, and especially Juwan Morgan, the load he has to carry, he'll sometimes ease his way in defensively. And I get part of that is, you know, not wanting to foul. But on some of those plays, like when he's out there hedging, kind of doing it flat-footed, I don't know if it would have made a difference because Michigan moved the ball so quickly. In right. that case, it might not have made a huge difference. But I do think over the first four, five, six minutes of the game, you know, that does... We're a team with a defensive identity, and it kind of seems like it takes us a little while to get into that. And that was, you know, evident in that clip. And I'm hoping, I, th I think, having more depth will be part of that because when guys are playing 35, 36 minutes, you know, sorry to all the old school IU fans out there, but you can't go 100 percent like you know the entire time. Yeah. Um, but it's it's an issue at the start of games, and I think we've got to find a way to pick up our defensive intensity early in the game. Credit to Justin Smith because he did it right out of the gate. Yeah, that was one of the things that jumped out to me as well. Just his his focus, how he was dialed in on the defensive end was really impressive. And, you know, we haven't really seen him guard that many great perimeter guys this season. You know, Lamar Stevens will work on the perimeter. Jordan Wara you know, can shoot the ball, can dribble it, can handle it. But Brazdakis is a little bit more of a perimeter-oriented player where he's going to put the ball on the floor a little bit more often, kind of move around, run off screens, spot up, and just play beyond the three-point line more often than some of the guys that Justin Smith has had to guard this season. So we haven't really seen Justin, you know, move his feet and really get out and guard in space a lot this season. And I was very impressed with the way that he did that against Brazdakis. And, you know, Brazdakis isn't the quickest guy in the world. You know, he's not going to blow by everyone. He doesn't have elite speed, um, but he's, he's quick and he's, and he's capable and he's crafty in terms of getting to the basket and, and making things happen there. And I thought there's a, I have a clip kind of coming up here in a, in a few uh, moments that, you know, Justin Smith slides his feet, uses his chest, keeps his arms out, perfect defensive technique. And I think that's been, kind of become a theme of the season for him, where early on in the year, it seemed like he didn't really know what his role was, what he was being asked to do, kind of how to execute what they wanted him to do. And Archie Miller touched on this in his radio show last night. Justin Smith has really improved defensively, not just from this time last year, but from the start of the season. I think he's looked a lot better. Um, so I've been, I've been really impressed with what he's done. He's kind of weathered that, you know, that tough spell that he had early in the year and really emerges an important piece for IU. And yeah, I mean, it, it's when the rest of the team is kind of flat footed and not really giving that hundred percent effort, Justin Smith's technique, his discipline, his effort really does stand out. Yeah. I saw, I saw a couple comments from people that were like, Justin Smith needs to wake up. Justin Smith didn't show up against Michigan. I'm like, I don't know what game you were watching, but you have identified yourself as someone whose opinion on basketball is not worth paying attention to. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, and Archie also talked about, you know, maybe getting him a little bit more offensive opportunity. He didn't take a lot of shots in the Michigan game. It was more just kind of, you know, it was, he had a nice putback dunk early in the game. Um, he, you know, had a, a drive to the basket and missed a layup. So, he, but he didn't really take that many shots. So he he's still struggling to kind of assert himself and get into the flow on offense. But defensively, he's been as important as anyone on this team. Yep. The second video here is actually which one is this? We've got. Um, well, let's just find out together. Let's, let's find out. Clifton Moore is out there. Another pick and roll. Oh, so Roberts this is, is so this is basically yeah. Clifton Moore is in the game. This is kind of the opposite of that first clip where oh, you know I this it, play. instead of. 
diving area and kind of gluing yourself to the roll man, you stay a little bit too far out on these shooters and credit to Michigan. They do a great job spacing the floor. You got a shooter on this corner, shooter in this corner, Justin Smith and Zach McRoberts are kind of, you know, foot in the paint, but they're, they can't really come all the way to the midline because these two shooters, you know, Charles Matthews and Ignis Brasdakis uh, can hurt you and, and be so devastating out there. So again, they kind of hedge the pick and roll. Clifton Moore doesn't totally execute it. You know, he's, he kind of does a mix between a hedge and a drop where he's, he's still facing the, the, the mid court line. He doesn't really wall off this drive. And so Jordan Poole is basically able to drag the defense with him kind of toward this right wing. I mean, it almost looks like Clifton's switching and that, you know, it's like he didn't tell Al Durham that they were switching. (laughs) Yeah. He, he stays with him probably a beat or two too long. And the consequence of that is that I think this is Austin Davis subbed into the game for John Teske here for Michigan. The downside of that is, you know, once Ignis Brasdakis, you'll see him rotate kind of from this left corner up to the left wing to create a better passing angle for the shot. Justin Smith sees that he tags the roller. He does his job. But Clifton Moore doesn't get back in time. And so basically the choice here for Indiana is, do you want to give up an open three to Braz Dacus or do you want to give up an open dunk to Austin Davis? You know, Justin kind of gets caught in between and he ends up going back out to the shooter. Davis catches and finishes through Zach McRoberts. Who's not, you know, for all of his grit and hustle is not really going to pose that big of a threat to a, a massive human being like Austin Davis down low. So, you know, that's one where, Ideally, you're not playing Clifton Moore in the situation because you have Deron Davis and you've got a little bit more depth you can go to. Um, but, you know, sometimes you'll be in those circumstances. And I just think this was another early in the game, 13-22 left. Another case of Indiana just not totally being dialed in on the defensive end. And against Michigan, you know, these buckets that build up over the first eight, 10 minutes of the game can really come back to haunt you. And, and they did in this game. And, you know, people talk about Clifton Moore needs more minutes, and I would love to see him get more minutes because it would help his development. But plays like that right now are the reason why he's not getting them. Because when he plays, you know, he, he is, and, and Coach mentioned this on the show, there were a couple of times that he altered shots, and so he can present yep. some things for you. But at least once or twice a game when he's out there, he will mess up a, a, a ball screen coverage like this, and it gets everybody, you know, out, out of rotation. And it, you know, that mistake leads directly to a basket. And I think if he can clean some of those things up, you know, just from an awareness perspective, like you said, it was a beat or two. If he recognizes and and goes back to his man, now that doesn't happen. And you remove a play where basically it leads right to two points. And that will make him more valuable on the court because you won't, he won't lead so directly to a defensive breakdown like that. So he's a sophomore. He's, you know, he's still learning those things. So I don't necessarily mean that as a criticism. It's just an explanation for why, because a lot of people wonder why he's not playing more. And I think plays like that continue to be the reason why. Yeah. The mistakes he makes are typical of a young player who doesn't play much. You know, he yeah. he's jumpy on defense. He, he kind of will lurch one way and it's clear. He doesn't really know what to, what to do, where to be. Um, and you know, cause, cause those things being able to do that, right. It takes time. It takes repetition. And if you're not getting those reps, it can be tough to kind of grasp that, especially in a scheme that requires as much connectedness defensively as Indiana's does. The thing I would say to Clifton, if I were a coach kind of going through this in film session is, if you're going to hedge, you got to get all the way out there, you know, kind of get parallel to the, the sideline and shut off that drive. And if you're going to drop, you only need to be in front of the ball as long as it takes the guy guarding the ball to get back in front. And then you got to get back to your man. And yeah. Clifton stays with him too long. You know, I think, is it Al Durham guarding the ball? Whoever it was. Yeah, it's Al. And if Clifton's going to do that, they need to just switch and Al needs to go run and try and right. do something to Davis. So Al had gotten back in front of the ball already. Yeah. And that's when you got to leave if you're the big man and kind of get back to your man because otherwise it, it does create those breakdowns. 
Yep. The next clip here is also from the first half. It's not so much, you know, a, a defensive breakdown. It's just kind of a really, it's just Romeo Langford kind of making a, a freshman mistake. And, and really a lot of players make this mistake. Jawan Morgan has done this this season. Um, and you know, this is, this is not to call out Romeo or, or anything like that. It's just that, you know, it's, it's kind of an example of the little things against a team like Michigan really do matter because you'll see here, Indiana strings together a really nice defensive possession. They, they guard the pick and roll. Well, you know, they, they close out on shooters. They force a difficult shot and you'll see at the end, Romeo makes a crucial mistake that gives Michigan life and allows them to score out of this possession that they probably had no business scoring on. And so to start a same kind of set we've seen in the first two clips, high pick and roll. We'll rewind a little bit. Juwan gets out and then immediately back to his man. And Justin Smith has a nice little tag down here on the roller, John Teske, and then gets back out to Charles Matthews, kind of preventing that shot that we saw in that first clip. Meanwhile, Juwan and Romeo Langford is over here helping on John Teske in case they want to enter it to the post. They've got a man there. And actually, that, that's, that's what he will end up doing later on in the possession because Charles Matthews is going to drive baseline. And then John Teske rolls here, and Romeo slides over to take away this, this layup. And this is, this is kind of good scramble defense by Indiana because you know, Michigan is running a lot of different actions. They're putting Jawan Morgan in a lot of pick and rolls, making him move around the floor. And it's, it's hard to stay with your assigned guy through the entirety of that possession. And so what you'll see here is, is kind of a, you know, a longer version of an X out, which is basically where you know, the guy closest to the, the man who catches the ball, I think in this case it's going to be Jordan Poole, is going to close out. And then whoever is kind of not guarding anyone just closes out to the nearest man. And so Michigan's going to swing the ball. Al Durham is going to step up and guard Eli Brooks here on the ball rotation. Juwan is rotating all the way from the left corner to the right corner to close out on Jordan Poole. And it forces a drive here. Al does a good job staying in front of the ball. And here's the mistake. Romeo Langford just swatting at a ball that he has no chance of blocking instead of blocking out John Teske. And the result is an easy putback dunk. And those are the kinds of things. You know, it's a really nice defensive possession, good hustle, good connectedness from Indiana, all possession long. And you'll see Romeo, when this shot goes up, he should be putting a body on John Teske right there, keeping him off the boards because Al Durham is already going to contest this shot. Eli Brooks has already left his feet by the, tome, by the time Romeo leaves his, and he just has no chance of blocking the shot. And instead, you give up an easy basket because you're just kind of gambling for something that is really not going to pay off. I see Coach is agreeing with you in the chat. I'm going to defend Romeo a little bit on that. I mean, I think he was... No, he probably didn't have a chance to get that, but he was close. And I think you're right when you termed it a freshman mistake. You know, he's been a guy who's gotten yeah. by so much with his athletic ability. I can see why his instinct there is to try and block it. And part of what makes Romeo great is his confidence and his belief that he can make plays that other people don't see. So where you and I might look at that and say he has no chance, I understand why the competitor in him thinks he does. So I agree with you. As he, you know, gets older, you would hope that he would see that as let me go box this guy out. But I kind of understand and excuse the thinking on that one for freshman Romeo. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And, you know, it's something you learn. Like I said, Juwan Morgan's done that a couple times this season as well. And it's a natural tendency, right? Guys want to pin shots against the backboards. Guy wanna, guys want to swat shots out of bounds. You know, they want to make those highlights, highlight plays. It's kind of, you know, the, the natural inclination. You're not always thinking, okay, where's my man and how do I box him out on this play? That's not always the first thought that a, that a player will have. Um, but you know, again, against, against Michigan, again, against these great teams, they can beat you for that. And, and all of those little kind of tiny mistakes 
add up over the course of the game. Yep. Next clip here is another good defensive possession for Indiana. This comes in the second half. And to me, this was the the possession that kind of, you know, signified Indiana getting back in the game. And I thought maybe their best defensive possession of the entire game. Um, You'll see Davier Simpson bringing the ball up here against Devontae Green. And just, I don't have, you know, really have the, the, the ability to point out every single good thing that Indiana does on this possession because it's a lot of really little things and they happen in quick succession. But just notice how, how easily and how well Indiana gets over screens on this possession and their closeouts because every ball screen the man's fighting over, and this is, this is after they started dropping pick and rolls too, so you're not going to see those hedges like they did early in the game. It's kind of a more conservative scheme, taking away the driving lanes, um, kind of lower back in the paint as opposed to out on the floor. But all the guards, for even forwards, are fighting over screens. They're denying the ball. They're closing out high hands, choppy steps. They're helping in the right places. And to me, this signified kind of you know what Indiana can be and what they are when they're really at their best on the defensive end. So, well, just look at where, where you had that screen stopped. You had four guys in a stance. <laughs> you know, like right. it kind of starts with that, which we didn't see in the very first possession of the game. You know, and, and I mean, big part of defense is just being ready to play defense. You know, and so I mean that that was evident right away from this clip. Yeah, it's a great point. They're they're locked in, and this is right after halftime too. So that that could very well have been a message in the locker room that they need to come out with some more defensive engagement. So they enter it to Charles Matthews on the left wing, and you know Michigan going to run through their sets. Romeo Langford, after Matthews gives gives the ball up, Langford gets into him and kind of bumps him off his spot, takes away that post look that they want. Meanwhile, Al Durham is following Jordan Poole off this screen. Look how he gets into his body, gets skinny over the pick, and he's there on the closeout. Same thing here. Justin Smith is going to come through here. Good job by Al Durham giving Justin Smith space to get through this screen. You're going to see Al drop a little bit. Smith's going to shoot the gap here between Al Durham and Jordan Poole. Gets through for the closeout on Brasdakis and then fights over this screen. Gets skinny, stays in a stance, takes away the drive, takes away the drive again, forces a, a, a kickout pass after Al Durham helps down. I should say Devontae Green helps down, then closes back out on Xavier Simpson. Meanwhile, everyone remains in a stance. Green gets over the screen. Smith closes out, and they force a tough contested three at the end of the shot clock. I mean, that's holy smokes, that was beautiful. Darn near a a perfect defensive possession. You just see everyone stunting and recovering, closing out on the ball, you know, getting over picks, staying in a stance, keeping their hands high, everything. I mean, that's that's a, a defensive clinic, and it didn't happen consistently all game. But there were a couple possessions, and we saw this a couple times against Louisville as well. It's been there sporadically throughout the season. Those are the defensive possessions that if Indiana can do those consistently, I mean, they just shut down a a Michigan team that is one of the best offensive teams in the country. Granted, it was for one possession. But, you know, if you can do that against a team with that much talent, that much, you know, ball uh, uh, shot creation off the dribble on one team, if you can do that against that kind of roster, you can probably do it against anyone. And I, I think that was kind of the flashpoint moment of this game for me. If you're going to take one good thing away from this game, for me, it's that defensive possession. Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, it shows what this team is capable of when they're really locked in defensively. That was, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> I can, you look like you're on the verge of tears. Yeah. I mean, that was, yeah, I, I, I kind of am. That was beautiful. <laughs> I have to take that clip and watch it a few times later. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can send you the link. <laughs> um, so here let's, we'll transition a little bit into offense. Oh, I haven't, I haven't shared the screen. I got to do that. Transition to the offensive side of the ball. You know, this is, I think, something that's going to emerge as a, a more consistent theme as the season goes on, and especially as they enter Big Ten play. You know, 
the schedule is not going to get any easier for Indiana. So uh, maybe it gets easier for Michigan and Duke, but still you, you got a gauntlet pretty much every single night. You're playing a good team. Um, I think that they're going to give the ball to Romeo Langford a heck of a lot more often, uh, even than they have been. And maybe not more, but just in a different context, because, you know, so far he's kind of been acting as a second side playmaker where he's catching and attacking off of a closeout. They'll run the occasional pick and roll um, and, you know, isolate from time to time and, and shoot a, a jump shot. But in this Michigan game, it, part of it had to do with Rob Finnessy being out and then just not really having that many guards who could handle the ball. But Romeo took on a lot of ball handling duty in this game. And I think kind of later in the game, this is from the first half, but but we saw it a lot more in the second half. The coaching staff kind of realized, okay, we just got to take our two best players and put them in a pick and roll. And I've talked about this before, how that's probably your best source of offense. And it was only a matter of time before Indiana kind of realized that. And I think that that time has come. Um, this, this was about the time where Indiana started to get back in the game around the 11 minute mark. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it, you know, came as they started putting the ball in Romeo's hands a little bit more often using Juwan as a screener and just letting Romeo work. So we'll see here. He, he goes right on almost every pick and roll. And I apologize for the, the camera angle here. CBS cut away right as he accepted the screen. Uh, but he's going to go middle. And basically, as Charles Matthews fights over the screen, Romeo is just going to use that extra space as a runway to go right at John Teske. Or maybe this is Austin Davis. Um, it's John Teske. Go right at him, right by him, up to the basket for the layup. That's a simple play. You know, it doesn't take much dissecting to kind of realize what happened there. But it's just illustrative of what Indiana has, the kind of personnel, and how it can best play to that personnel. I think you just got to put the ball in Romeo Langford's hands, allow Jawan Morgan to act as a screener, as a role man. The post-ups for Jawan will continue. You can still do all of that stuff. But I think if, you, if you're able to trim out some of the Devontae Green isolations, some of the Rob Finnessy dribbling around the key, some of the out-of-control Justin Smith drives, and turn those into more efficient plays, by basically putting the ball in Romeo's hands, I think the offense is going to be a lot better for it. Yeah, you know, you said that's that's a simple play, and it is, but it's made simple by the fact that Romeo is elite at so many of the yep. things that it took to make it simple. You know, the vision coming off the screen to immediately recognize that he could attack there. The amount of ground that he can cover, which helped him make up for the fact that he was at a size disadvantage to the defender, and his just amazing ability to get the ball up on the rim with the with the ability to score it, you know, not just kind of fling it up there. Like I, I've, I'm, you know, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but I can't remember another player that I've seen attacking the basket that I'm more confident when he puts the ball up that it's going to go yeah. in. Like he just his layups are so confident. It's like they hit the perfect spot on the glass every single time, and they're no doubters. And it took all of that to make that play look so simple, but that's what the great players do. And I agree with you. You know, if if Indiana's offense continues to struggle, especially for as long as Rob Finnessy is out, you got to just put the ball in his hands. I mean, it's it's your best chance. Yeah, and I think also unlocking Jawan Morgan as a role man a little bit more often could be effective for him as well, because as good as he is in the post, and he's also great in the post. Um, you know, I think he could be really devastating as a role man. He's not, you know, he's not Justin Smith in terms of the explosiveness, the vertical athleticism. But he's really good finishing around the basket. He can do that out of the post. And I think if you can get him some easier looks as a role man, he's going to have a little bit easier time scoring the ball. You use the word elite to describe Romeo Langford in the pick and roll. And I think that's the right word. I mean, he is elite. That's the not stats back it up. He's like in the 90 some percentile nationally. Right. High 90 percentile in all of college basketball as a pick and roll scorer. I think he could improve a little bit as a pick and roll passer, but 
he's a freshman playing what his 15th game in college. I think that's something that comes with a little bit more experience, more reps that takes a little bit more time, but just the pure scoring instincts, the touch with, you know, around the basket off the glass, like you said, just puts the ball in the perfect spot off the glass. He can be going at any speed from any angle and just be able to flip the ball up there with, with just this effortless touch that not a lot of guys can do. And he makes it look so easy um, that you kind of forget how difficult those shots really are to be going at full speed with a weird angle at the basket and just be able to kind of, you know, slide it off the glass. It's really tough to do. Um, and he goes right probably a little bit too much uh, than, than he should because I, I just think teams can catch on to that um, and, and kind of take away what he wants to do. He does like to go right off the pick and roll, but that's not to say that he doesn't have a left hand. It's just that he has an easier time going right. If you can do that, then, you know, if they're if the defense is going to give that to you, then you take it. He also had a play in the Michigan game where he got the ball on the right wing and took it, you know, took it left into the lane and had that beautiful little just yeah. scoop shot. But now it wasn't even a scoop shot. I don't even know what you would call that. It was, it was like it was like a little step. finger roll. Yeah, I think it, it like was. Like a euro step around on the right block and the finger. Yes, yeah. yeah, then the little yeah. finger roll, which was beautiful too. Yeah, he's he's just got really good instincts, and I think the ability to change speeds. You know, he he's not like a super quick change of direction kind of guy. He's more of a fluid athlete in terms of lateral movement, but his ability to change speeds, just to kind of stop on a dime. That euro step is a good example where you're just going full speed, and then you change directions go into a euro step kind of shift gears to keep the defense off balance it's all really important to his his scoring arsenal yep the, the next clip here is i mentioned his his passing in the pick and roll this is a good example of you know kind of what that can be this is romeo running a pick and roll this is late in the game where indiana basically every possession was going to kind of this one four flat set uh with romeo at the top and just running romeo langford juan morgan pick and rolls occasionally you would get justin smith involved in the action but more or less, it was Romeo Langford running the show um, for the last five or six minutes there of the second half. And here is gonna you're gonna get a, a pick and pop with Jawan Morgan, which I think is something they'll go to more often, especially as Morgan starts to make more of his three point shots. I think his percentage is we're seeing it's a little bit more sustainable than maybe I thought early in the year on that low volume of attempts. He he's still making quite a bit um, when he when he takes shots from behind the line. And this, you know, I, I didn't pick up on this the first time I watched this play, but upon second watching, this is actually a really brilliant play by Romeo because it kind of shows this understanding of how to read the defense and how to manipulate it out of the pick and roll, which is a really important tool for a primary scorer who runs a lot of pick and roll like Romeo Langford does, not just in the college ranks, but, you know, moving forward at the NBA level. These are the kinds of things that you need to learn how to do and, and learn how to unlock. So you've got Charles Matthews. He's, you know, they want to force the pick and roll to this side. You can see Matthews kind of pointing right, right, right. But Jawan's going to set the screen on the other side. And Romeo is able to get by it. We talked about ice coverage, how if the ball handler is able to go the other way of where the defense wants him to, the coverage is kind of busted. That's what we see here because John Teske's on this side of the pick and he's going to have to come all the way over to the left side and follow Romeo Langford. Otherwise, he's going to get to the basket. Matthews tries to fight over the screen, but Romeo's got a little bit of a step and you see him draw these two defenders and put his head up. Now watch Jordan Poole, who's kind of the only help side defender on this side of the floor. And he has to make the choice between Jawan Morgan and Al Durham over here in the left wing. And Romeo, he sees both guys and basically he's just going to put the ball up and see what Jordan Poole does. You see there, Poole kind of darts toward Al Durham like he's going to make the pass to the corner. That frees up Jawan Morgan for a wide open top of the key three, and he bangs it, you know, to, to put Indiana within 10. 70 to 61, baby. Here we come. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's a really nice read by Romeo Langford. And I'll just show that one portion of it again, where he picks up his dribble, gives that quick ball fake, and the defense is cooked. Juwan Morgan's wide open. And I think the beauty of that too is that Romeo has that cross-court pass in his bag. So if Jordan Poole were to stay with Juwan Morgan and stunt that way instead, I think Romeo could still make that cross-court pass and generate a corner three for Al Durham, who's shooting the ball really well this season. So you know that's why I say that I think they should put more Romeo in the pick and roll more often. It's not just you know to let him take every shot, let him score every time he can, even though he probably could do that if he wanted to. It's that I think he's got these passing instincts. I think just when you put your best player you know, on the ball, it puts pressure on the defense. And when the defense is pressured, they get out of position. They start to scramble. They start to hesitate. They start to panic. And, you know, that creates these little cracks that if you have smart players playing off of Romeo that you're able to exploit. That pass reminded me of LeBron. That's the kind of pass that LeBron makes where you get in the air and you kind of see what the defense does. And then you pass based on where the defense goes. And again, you know, we talked about it with the last clip. You know, a lot's been made of Romeo's struggles with the three-point shot. And obviously, if he were making more threes, he would just be at another level as a scorer. So how is he able to still be, you know, an elite player, even as a freshman, when he's not making threes? It's because he there's all these little things that he is elite at. Like that right there showed off his elite athleticism, because you have to be able to get in the air and kind of hang there. You've yeah. got to have elite vision to do that and elite instincts to know that in that moment, you see the defender... And now you know, here, I've got to read what this guy does. I mean, there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot going on there that requires you to be elite in a lot of different things. That's why you just don't see passes like that that often at the college level. Yeah, and the three-point shot is a, is a good note to make. I, I, feel like, I feel like we're obligated to, to make that kind of disclaimer every time we talk about Romeo Langford, how you know, the three-point shot isn't falling yet, but when it does. But I do well, think... But that's why I wish people talked more about this kind of stuff. Right, yeah, let's focus yeah. on that instead of just the three-point shooting, which it's starting to come around a little bit. I will that's say. what I was going to say. I think, I think it started to, and I think it will continue to because, you know, first of all, because it's, it's really hard to stay at low 20s for an entire season in terms of percentage. That's just... It doesn't happen very often for a guy that takes the kind of volume of threes that Romeo does. Uh, and second of all, I just think he's a better shooter than that. And the law of averages tends to kind of even out and, and he's getting better shots. I think as he kind of understands what his role is a little bit better in this offense, he's going to start to get some more comfortable shots. They had a really nice baseline out of bounds play in that Michigan game to get him a catch and shoot three from the left side, which I thought was really well designed. Maybe they look to do a little bit more of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, when that three point shot does start falling, I think it just makes them all the more dangerous in those little areas that you talked about, because the more a defense has to respect your jump shot, you know, the more you're able to do other things and kind of leverage that jump shot into other stuff that you can do on the court. And I think that's just one example. Another thing too is his, like I said, his change of direction, his change of speed, just his overall shiftiness and instincts, even if the defense is giving him space because you know they're willing to give up that jumper, even if they're giving him space, he's still able to get to the basket and get around guys. He's got such long arms that he just reaches the ball out and he can extend it um, you know, past the defense to a place that you know his man just can't reach. And so he's got all these little tools that allow him to work around the lack of a jump shot right now, but you know, ideally you'd want that to start to come around. You'd want to see him start to make more of those. And I think he will. And I think he has. He's great, man. He really is. I mean, and I, I know the vast, vast majority of Indiana fans are just thoroughly enjoying it and, and kind of soaking up every minute. Cause we know that he'll only be here for a year. 
Um, yep. But he's great. And I tell you, you know, another little reason to think that the three-point shooting will come is that the free-throw shooting has been coming. You know, yeah. and, and and we really have no idea if he was dealing with anything with his wrist. That was an issue that, you know, that went back to last year. You know, John in the chat said Romeo probably still getting used to his new bulked-up body. That could be too. You know, Yogi famously, you know, struggled with his shot as a freshman, you know, after coming in, getting on the weight program, and then really kind of came around as a sophomore, junior, and senior with it. So, but Romeo's up, you know, over 70% now from the free-throw line. So, I mean, the stroke is there. Now it's just about you know being able to hit threes within the flow of the offense. But my goodness, does he do so many, so many things out on the court that yeah. just you know kind of take your breath away every game. By the way, you mentioned the wrist. Do you, I I and maybe just missed the boat on this, but do you know what happened with his wrist? Because I've noticed that brace that he wears on it, but I've never. I never got like an explanation of what that is. I don't know exactly what the injury is, but he had something dating back to his time at New Albany. And actually, before the season started, I think in between the summer program and when they reported to campus, he basically wore a cast on it for like two or three weeks. And there was a a picture that came out and everybody's like, oh my God, what happened to Romeo? It's like, no, no, no. They put the cast on to basically force him to like, you know, not go work out and play just to, give it, yeah, yeah. Ju- just to give it some time to rest. So okay. I, I, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, Alex and I have talked about it. Someone podcast on the brink, like it's, it's obviously not a serious enough thing that he's not playing. And who knows? I don't know if he's 90%, 95%, 75%, yeah. you know, I have no idea, but it does seem like there's kind of some kind of lingering thing there that, you know, that could possibly be affecting it when he gets, you know, at longer ranges. So. I would imagine it has to, right? I mean, I, I don't want to make excuses for the guy, but yeah. I feel like if you've got a, a, a even just a little bit of tape on your wrist, I feel like would bother me as a shooter. And I can't imagine having like a big giant, you know, tape gauze brace just on your hand every single game. Even if you do wear it every single game, I can't imagine that is easy to get used to. So I, I have to think that that's, you know, bothering him to some degree. Is it the sole reason why his three-point shot, is, you know, his three-point percentage has plummeted? Probably not, but you know that has to play some role in it. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, this has by far been our longest basketball two hundred one. This this is going to be the thing. Now that we're going to be now that, that we're going to have this in its own show, <laughs> there's not like another segment coming after it. Recording wise, we we're just we're just going to keep on going. More yep. more clips, more breakdowns. I don't think uh, I don't think the listeners will mind too much. All right, perfect. Uh, cool. Well, thanks, Ben. As always, any yeah. any final thoughts just on what you saw from Indiana last week and what you think about what they need to do coming up against Maryland and the many tough games they have beyond. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, like I said, at the top, the, the Michigan game kind of went as I expected. Um, I don't think losing by what 11, nine to the second best team in the country is anything to be ashamed of. I, I think, you know, the loss, obviously you, you'd rather win than lose, but I don't think this is anything to hang your head about because Indiana played well for portions of that game. They, they need to be more consistent. They need to do it earlier. They need to get off to better starts. So there are things that you, need to fix the offense could be a little bit more coherent but we touched we, we looked at a lot of clips that illustrated what indiana did well in that game and there were a lot of things to be proud of so i think just taking that you know not getting discouraged by the loss i don't think this team will get discouraged by the loss uh, you know they i think they, they tend to bounce back from things like this and um you know i just just taking those positives the defensive connectedness that we saw in that that one clip in particular you know the 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 stylistic shift of putting the ball in romeo's hands a little bit more often and then just hope that the rest of the team gets healthy for for once. Man, for once. Can we get some positive? I mean, you know, I was about to say, you know, can we get some positive injury luck? But then just in that Michigan game, Romeo turns his ankle. But thank goodness, yeah. it seems like he's okay. You talk about the season, you know, flashing before your eyes. I mean, that's that's kind of been the one thing about the injury. 
No, you know what? I'm not even going to say it. I've wanted to make this point a couple of times. I am not going to say it. I'm stopping myself right now. I don't call. really believe in jinxes, but I also don't want to tempt fate. So just no, know there was an important point there to be made about injuries, but you'll be happy that I didn't make it. Yes. So and let's, you know, just, let's just get healthy. <laughs> it's frustrating as a, a media member, just like an, an unbiased observer of the team, because there are all these different like lineup combinations and kind of stylistic things that I want to see them do, but they just can't do because everyone's injured. So I'm like, oh, I... I wish I could see how, you know, Zach McRoberts and Rob Finnessy and Romeo Langford all play together, but we just don't get enough of it. You know, I wish I could see a lineup with, you know, Jawan and, and Justin and Jerome Hunter, but Jerome Hunter hasn't played. And like, it's just it, all these little intriguing things that you're like, oh, I wonder what that looks like. We may never know. I know. I know. All right. Well, coming up here, it is time for our opponent preview. Indiana faces Maryland on Friday night. And while the Hoosiers will always pose challenges for opponents because of Juwan and Romeo's greatness, this Maryland team poses some particular matchup challenges for IU. We'll discuss it next. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Assembly Call, Banner Monday, on Tuesday, each week in our final segment. We dedicated to preview Indiana's upcoming opponent for that week. And this week, we got a long time to wait. You know, Indiana plays Sunday, a nice long layoff until Friday, which hopefully is a layoff coming at the right time. You know, Deron Davis obviously, you know, warmed up but couldn't play against Michigan. Hopefully we get him back. As goodness gracious, could we use him uh, in this matchup? Hopefully, you know, with a little extra time, Rob Finnessy is ready to come back. Jake Forrester as well, you know, because obviously we're getting pretty deep in the bench there, so we need all hands on deck. So hopefully that is one of the benefits that comes out of this long break. But they play Friday. The game is at 5.30. I think it's on Fox or FS1. Um, so it's a little bit of an early start. Pretty nice for folks who uh, host post-game shows. That'll be, uh, that'll be nice. Uh, Bob asked, any update on the injured guys? No update yet. I would anticipate one on Thursday uh, when Archie does his media availability. I don't think we'll hear anything um, before then other than you know message board rumors. Um, but let's talk about IU Maryland. So coming into this game, Indiana's number 27 in Ken Palm. Maryland is number 28. So obviously very close uh, from the computer perspective. Ken Palm uh, gives Indiana a 38% chance to win and predicts a 74-70 victory for Maryland. If you look at the history, obviously not a long history between these teams. Uh, and we're not going to go very far back in the history. We will keep it just to uh, games since Maryland joined the Big Ten because other previous games are too painful to discuss and I won't do it. Um, Obviously, last year, Indiana beat Maryland at home, 71-68. That was that game where Jawan got injured in the Michigan State game. We weren't sure if he'd be able to come back. He puts up 25 points. I think he had four boards, four assists, two steals, two blocks. He was awesome, and we won a close game late. However, and we've beaten Maryland every time they've come to Simon Scott Assembly Hall. However, we have lost to Maryland every time it hasn't been a home game. So in 2017, we lost 75-72. That was that game where OG had that ridiculous dunk. I think he got hurt the next game against Penn State. Uh, in 2015, we lost 68-66. to That was the game where uh, I think Yogi shot, rimmed out right at the end. And then in the rematch in the Big Ten tournament that year, we lost 75-69. So games against Maryland are typically very close, you know, uh, at least, you know, when we're playing them there, we've, we certainly we blew them out uh, a couple times at home. But when we play them there, it's typically very close. I expect that will be the same this year. Uh, Maryland is 12-3. and three. They are 3-1 and one or 4-1 and one in the conference uh, so far. You look at their wins. Uh, they have wins 
over number 61, Penn State, number 68, Loyola, and number 16, Nebraska. That game against Nebraska, obviously uh, their biggest win of the season, that came at home. They have lost to number two, Virginia, at home. They've lost to number 17, Purdue, uh, and then they've lost to number 49, Seton Hall, at home. So they have lost uh, twice at home. Um, so they are they are not unbeatable in their home venue, although... You know, can't really compare Indiana to Virginia, but Seton Hall, you know, the number 49 team in Ken Palm, Indiana ranked higher than them. Uh, You know, one of the defining traits of this Maryland team is that they are very young. They are 349th in the country in experience. They are one of the youngest teams in the country. Anthony Cowan, obviously, is a junior who has played a lot of minutes. Bruno Fernando is a sophomore, but then they start three other freshmen. Uh, Jalen Smith, who Mike DeCourcy talked about. Eric Ayala is another one. Uh, And then Wiggins uh, is the other guy's name. Uh, and then the next two guys off their bench are a sophomore and a freshman. So, I mean, they are very, very young. Uh, in terms of their profile, their offense is currently ranked 28th in the country. Um, and, you know, in some ways, they're similar to Indiana uh, because they have a lot of success uh, on twos. They have a very high two-point field goal percentage, thanks in large part to Bruno Fernando and Jalen Smith. They don't take a ton of threes, and they turn it over a decent amount, which you would expect from a young team. They turn it over almost 20% of the time. That's 203rd uh, in the country. The big difference between Maryland and Indiana offensively is they offensive rebound like crazy. They get 37.2% uh, of their shots. Uh, they get them as rebounds. That's 15th in the country. Indiana, obviously not a team that really focuses on offensive rebounding, but it's a big part of what Maryland does. You know, offensively, they run things through Anthony Cowan and Bruno Fernando. Uh, Anthony Cowan plays almost 85% of minutes. I mean, he's a guy, you know, a role similar to, you know, what a Yogi had for Indiana. I mean, he's really the guy that kind of makes things go. He's got an assist rate of about 24%. Don't get me wrong. He's not as good as Yogi, but that's just kind of the role. Uh, He takes a lot of threes. He's taken 91 threes this year, only making them at about 34%. And when we get to the keys in the game, making him a jump shooter is going to be important for Indiana. You can't just let him probe the defense and get inside because what happens if he does that is you've got Bruno Fernando and Jalen Smith as cutters, and that's been one of their most effective sources of offense, according to Synergy Sports. Fernando is a guy who's really come into his own as a sophomore. You know, he's a big guy who's able to play 70% of minutes because he doesn't foul a ton. He only commits 4.2 fouls per 40 minutes, which is a really good rate for a big man playing that many minutes. He draws a lot of fouls. He draws 5.6 per 40. So this is going to be a big challenge for Indiana because you know, you're going to have to put Juwan Morgan on him, and Juwan is going to have to do a good job of trying to beat him to spots, not let him get position, you know, try to use his quickness to his advantage, but not foul when Fernando gets position. I mean, Bruno Fernando is probably going to get six or seven point-blank buckets just because he gets position and we can't foul him and we don't necessarily have a big man outside of Deron Davis who can challenge him at the rim. So we're going to have to live with that. And then obviously you hope that on the other end, Juwan is able to you know pull Bruno away from the basket, make some threes, and then also go down low. And like he did against Teske, who is a taller guy, beat him with his guile, beat him with his quickness, which Juwan can really do. But that's going to be a really interesting matchup in this game. Um, Fernando, you know, like Juwan, I mean, he's almost 70% on his two-point field goals. He shoots well from the line and draws fouls, so you don't want to give him too many opportunities from the line. And he's an outstanding rebounder. Uh, we talked a little bit about Cowan. Jalen Smith, 
a guy who's playing about 60% of minutes. He's good on twos. He's a good rebounder, just a solid player for a freshman who can occasionally be great. And so that's going to be a big challenge for Justin Smith. And then Ayala and Wiggins, a couple of wings. They're 6'5", 6'6". They're both really good three-point shooters. So I would expect one of those guys to guard Romeo uh, and and Romeo to guard one of those guys. It's going to be important for Indiana to not give them too many good, clean looks uh, on the offensive end. Defensively, they are ranked 45th overall. It's interesting, you know, they're only 45th, but you kind of look at their Ken Palm profile and there's there's really nothing that jumps out as a big weakness except for the fact that they don't force turnovers, but they're a good rebounding team, they block shots, they don't really put opponents on the line, they defend twos pretty well, so they don't have any obvious deficiencies on defense except for this. They're not very good in transition. So they give up and again, this is, you know, something that you would expect from a young team. But they give up 1.05 points per possession in transition, which is in the 28th percentile nationally. In the half court, they're really pretty good. I think they're in the 80th or 85th percentile, somewhere around there. So they're a really good team defensively in the half court. So for Indiana, it's going to be really important to try to get some easy buckets in transition. The issue there, of course, is Indiana is not good in transition offensively. We're you know 22nd, 23rd percentile. We really aren't good. And Rob Finnessy has been one of our best players this year in terms of leading breaks and, and, and leading to conversions. Him being back would be huge for a number of reasons, but you know, having his ability in transition where I think that's going to be really important, especially on the road to get big buckets. Um, it, yeah, and as Bob says, you know, giving up transition points makes sense if they're focused on offensive rebounds. Absolutely. That's the counter, is if they're going to attack you on the offensive glass, then when you get a rebound, you got to be able to go the other way and turn it into points. So hopefully Indiana can do that, you know, get the ball into Romeo's hands. If it's in Devontae or Al's hands, they've got to make better decisions, get the ball into the middle of the court, let the other guys fill the lanes around them. That's going to be really big. So, you know, I think to win this game, Indiana is going to have to be better in transition. That's just not something that we've seen them do a lot of. If we want to talk about common threads and losses, you know, you look at the, at the three games Maryland has lost. You know, one common thread is that Bruno Fernandez really didn't go off in any of those losses. He averaged 14 points and 10 rebounds. So, I mean, he's still averaging a double-double, but didn't have a big 20-point game. You know, the, the damage was kind of minimized, and he only took 11 free throws in those three losses. So that's part of it. You know, give him his buckets. Let him go 6 of 7. Let him go 8 of 9 on twos, but don't give him extra opportunities from the free throw line and don't get your best players in foul trouble. So just remember that when he gets some, some easy twos is that, you know, we're going to have to live with some of that. The other common thread is that Anthony Cowan was inefficient as a shooter. He was six of 22 on threes in their three losses. He was eight of 20 on twos. And he's a guy who does seem to, you know, settle for jump shots. You know, even though you look at a synergy profile and he's so good at, you know, the pick and roll and doing some of these other things, the, you know, their most inefficient offense is Anthony Cowan taking jump shots. And maybe that's just because he struggled as a shooter. I haven't watched them enough. And maybe he's a better shooter than what he's showing. But right now, that has been a path to beating Maryland and, and to, you know, to getting a stop. It's also going to be important to limit turnovers. It always is on the road. Seton Hall only had eight turnovers. They won by four. Virginia only had two turnovers. They won by five. Now, Purdue had 16 turnovers, and they were still able to win. But, you know, two out of the three games, uh, the, the opposition really limited turnovers. Indiana did a much better job of that against Michigan. And then I think it's going to be important to make some threes. You know, all of the teams that beat Maryland hit eight or more three-pointers. 
which makes some sense. You know, it, you can get some some three pointers in transition. Um, you know, off of them going for those offensive rebounds. And if you're in the half court and you're facing a good half court team, you really need to maximize the opportunities when you do score. And that means exchanging a few two pointers for three pointers. Now, Indiana shouldn't go crazy with it. I think the style Indiana plays where they don't shoot many threes, but they hit a high percentage of a high percentage of the ones they shoot fits this particular roster. But I did think, you know, Galen made a good point on the recent ep- episode of Crimson Cast that if Indiana is going to squeeze a little bit more out of this offense, finding a way to get a few more three-pointers, whether it's running a play for Evan Fitzner, you know, whether it's Romeo you know, just hitting a higher percentage of his, whether it's Juwan Morgan doing some pick and popping and then against a guy like Fernando, you know, taking a few more threes instead of going you know, under the basket, maybe that helps us do that. So uh, I, think, I think we're going to need to go in there and make more than three, four, five three-pointers, which you know, we haven't, we've made... We made, what, two against Michigan and five against Illinois? Or five against Michigan and two against Illinois. So, uh, you know, we haven't been making a lot of them. I think it's going to be important uh, to win on the road to maybe make a few more of those. Um, and then just in terms of their offensive style, they take a lot of jump shots. 49% of their half-court possessions end up in a jump shot. So, you know, obviously have to challenge those shots, make them be not very clean looks, uh, and hope that they don't have a, a lights-out shooting day at home. Um, they're pretty solid in transition, you know, for Bruno Fernando, he posts up about 10% of the time or, or Maryland runs post-ups on 10% of their possessions. Most of them go to Fernando. He also gets a lot of offense off of cuts off of offensive rebounds. So it is going to be a big game for Juwan. You know, maybe you can't keep Fernando from getting that position on the block and scoring, but you can prevent him from getting to the line and you can put your body into him and box out and prevent him from getting easy putback opportunities. And if you can limit him in those two areas, the putbacks, and the free throws, now you can limit the impact that he has on the game. And, you know, him going from 14 points to 20 in a close game could be the difference in you winning and losing. And then, as you know, with Cowan, as I mentioned before, he shoots a lot. And, you know, as a spot-up shooter, when he's in spot-up situations, threes or twos, he's only producing 0.72 points per possession. That's not very good. So you'll live with him taking jump shots, you don't want him getting into the teeth of your defense, breaking things down, getting everybody in rotation, and then being able to find Jalen Smith or Bruno Fernando for easy buckets on cuts or kicking it out to Eric Ayala or Wiggins for open three-pointers. So, again, another reason why having Rob Finnessy back would be huge, but whoever's guarding him, Devontae Green, Al Durham, really need to contain Anthony Cowan. So, to recap, keys to victory, you got to defend Fernando without fouling, um, You know, especially Jawan, because we can't get him in foul trouble. Then we got to limit Fernando's damage on the offensive glass uh, and at the free throw line. Keep Anthony Cowan out of the lane. Force him to be a jump shooter. He'll take him. He hasn't been very efficient at doing it, but that's going to help you limit the damage Fernando and Smith can can make cutting to the basket. And then Indiana's going to have to push it. Get out in transition. Convert to get easy baskets on the road. Their transition D, not nearly as good as their half-court D. And the other thing is, you know, Maryland doesn't defend isos and cutters particularly well. That's an area where... where teams have been able to take advantage of their half-court defense. So I think that's a big opportunity for Romeo Langford, who excels in isolation situations, and for Justin Smith, who is very good as a cutter. You know, you're playing against young defenders. They can get lost sometimes. If Justin Smith can be smart about when to cut, you know, and then finish with authority when he gets it, that could help. And then just make some outside shots. It's that simple. You know, it really helps you on the road when you can make some threes. And I think that'll be important for Indiana to do. They're currently averaging 4.25 three-pointers per game in Big Ten play. That's 12th in the conference. 
you know, we're not going to have a high volume three point shooter all year. We know that, but we do have capable guys, you know? So if every game, if you can just get, you know, one from Devante, one from Al, one from Juwan, one from Romero, one from Fitz, you know, if they can all hit one apiece, that's five already right there. And maybe that will be considered good for this team. And then if you have, you know, one or two guys who can hit a couple, you can get up to seven or eight. So Indiana's got to find that balance between not just taking early threes in the shot clock, which they you know sometimes do when the shot selection isn't good, but trying to get some three-pointers out of the offense. Um, and if they can do that and they're good looks, then that may help them, again, just squeeze a little bit more out of the offense uh, by being able to hit some more of those higher efficiency shots from three. So, you know, I'll be frank. I don't have a real great feeling about this game. Um, and you should take solace in the fact that I had a good feeling about uh, about how we'd play at Michigan. Not that we would win, but just that we would make it a you know a forty minute game, which obviously we didn't do because of how we came out. So I would love to be proven wrong and that we really bounce back early. But I, you know, not that we'll get blown out, but I just I have a hard time seeing us going up there and winning this game because of some of the particular matchup problems that Maryland presents. Um, and just not knowing who's going to be available. I think Deron Davis would be really important in this game to be able to spend at least 10 to 15 minutes guarding Fernando. I think Rob Finnessy would be really huge in this game. And even if they play, you know, they'll be coming off, you know, an injury and not having played that much. And it's going to be a tough environment for them to go in. So it seems much more likely that we lose this game and then come back and get well against Nebraska at home. I think we match up much better against them. And obviously it's at home. But I, I do think it'll be a close game, and I think if Indiana can maybe make a few more shots uh, than what uh, than what we've been doing recently, then we can turn a close game into a victory. So, you know, <clears throat> my uh, sometimes my feelings are spot on, and sometimes they're way, way, way off. So I just always try and be candid with you about what they are, um, and I hope to be proven wrong. And chances are, by Friday at 5 o'clock, I will have talked myself into why we can win. So you should always probably trust my feeling you know, three days before the game. It's a much more uh, sober, measured feeling than the game day um, <laughs> when, you know, I'm always talking myself into being positive. So, but that's kind of how I see it right now. Should be a really interesting, fun game um, to watch. And hopefully the Hoosiers are uh, are able to go up there and get it done. Okay, well, that'll do it for us on this week's edition of Banner Monday on Tuesday. If you want to see us do the show live and be part of the live chat, I hit the wrong song. Gee whiz, hit the wrong closing song. Let's try that again. That will do it for us on this week's edition of Banner Monday. If you want to see us do the show live and be part of the live chat, join us at assemblycall.com on Monday afternoons. Uh, Monday afternoons, not Tuesdays, for the live broadcast of our Banner Monday recording. And you can always subscribe to our podcast by searching for Assembly Call wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to go to assemblycall.com or text IU to 66866 to join our free email newsletter. Thank you for listening. We'll be back for the IU Maryland postgame show. Until then, keep your elbows in and your eyes on the rim and go Hoosiers. Thank everybody for coming out. All right, I got to get out of here, folks. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for listening to this episode of the Assembly Call. We appreciate it. And we really do rely on the support of audience members like you to keep our show going and to keep growing. 
And so we have set up a page on our website at assemblycall.com slash support that lists five ways that you can support the assembly call. And we encourage you to choose whichever method is the easiest and most convenient for you. One of the methods is donating, and so many of you have donated, and we appreciate it so much. On that page, you can choose a monthly recurring donation or an annual recurring donation or just a one-time donation, whatever works for you. And if you don't want to donate, another way to support the show is you can use our affiliate URLs, iutickets.shop or iustore.shop when you're going to shop for tickets or gear, and we will get paid a small commission when you use those links. But however you support the show, we appreciate it. Thank you. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. Tonight's Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player client. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. Tonight's Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player client.